It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Oh, I'm lost somewhere between Jack Daniels and Jesus. Now we're going to keep talking about history and go to the hills of Little Lynchburg, Tennessee, to the home of Jack Daniels. And as part of the whiskey's 150th anniversary, the company is highlighting some of the lesser-known stories, including how a former slave played a key role. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN went to Lynchburg to learn more. Each year, 300,000 people find their way off the beaten path to visit the Jack Daniels distillery. Y'all get in here now, shake hands. With Uncle Jack. Here you go. Come and get it. Open your mouth. Visitors whiff the potent 80-proof air as a tour guide flaps this giant lid of a mellowing barrel two stories tall. Deborah Bevel is from Lubbock, Texas, and she's soaking it all in. This has been a two-year planning vacation for me to come here and see where my boyfriend came from. (laughs) Your boyfriend's from Lynchburg? No, my boyfriend's Jack Daniels. A joke, though I was slow to get it. But Bevel takes her drink of choice seriously. She's got Jack Daniel's bottles tattooed on her upper arm. She only takes it straight to honor the history. Before this tour, Bevel knew the high points. Jack Daniel leaves home as a young teen, goes to work for Dan Call, ironically a pastor, ends up helping with his whiskey still. But she hadn't yet heard about Nearus Green, one of the pastor's slaves. Even Green's descendants were kind of in the dark. My mother said something to me about it when I was real small, but I didn't think nothing about it back then, you know. This is Claude Eady, a 91-year-old relative of Nearest Green, who himself worked an entire career at the distillery. He's looking through some old photos from the 1940s when they made whiskey the very same way they do today, running it through charcoal made on site. 
run the whiskey in the top and they come out the bottom. It take a long time for it to go through that charcoal. This method of mellowing probably wasn't some kind of green family recipe. Everyone in these hills was making it the same way, says Jack Daniels company historian Nelson Eddy. There were so many people distilling whiskey, and charcoal mellowing was common to this area. Really, Eddie isn't sure what Nearest Green's role was. Corporate record-keeping in 1866? Not what it is today. So there are lots of blanks to fill in. There's a lot of mystery there. We don't know exactly what he taught Jack, but we do know that Jack had a great deal of respect uh, for that family because I think the best part of this story really is the photograph that hangs in the old office. There's Jack Daniel with a gray goatee around 1895, surrounded by his crew, including two African-American men believed to be the sons of Nearest Green. This photo is not some new discovery, and the fact that a former slave played a part in the origin story has been mentioned in books. So we ask Phil Epps, the director of Jack Daniels Global Marketing, whether this was an effort to create some racial diversity as a potential advertising angle. Yeah, that's definitely not the case, and we honestly don't see it as scandalous. We honestly just thought that, you know, the 150th year is a great opportunity to tell some of those lesser-known stories, and this just happens to be one of them. Folks, we're going to head into the heart of the whole operation now. The real keepers of the Jack Daniels story are the tour guides. They have no script to follow, just a batch of tales to pick from, And not all are convinced that Nearest Green's role is worth mentioning. Ron Craig only talks about him if visitors ask. There is no hard truth. I can't tell you for sure exactly what everything was back in the day. And uh, no one else can either. But increasingly, the Jack Daniels corporate office hopes the name of a former slave is weaved into the stories told to those who make the pilgrimage here each year. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Run the jewels, 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 This summer of movement called Hashtag Bank Black encouraged those protesting police brutality to move their money to black-owned banks. Now those banks are reporting a huge boost. Thousands of new accounts opened and a growth in assets amounting to about $6 million. Rapper Killer Mike is credited with popularizing the hashtag earlier this summer. Here he is in an interview with Hot 107.9. He's urging listeners to take immediate action. You can go to your bank tomorrow and you can say, until you as a corporation start to speak on our behalf, I want all my money. And I'm taking all my money to Citizens Trust. Right now, I ain't saying march, whole hand speech. I'm saying, take your money out of this dog's hands, out of their paws. Take your money. Killer Mike's Bank Citizens Trust is based in Atlanta. It's one of only 23 black-owned banks, credit unions, or savings and loan associations in the United States. Today, we're looking back at the historical intersection of race and banking and asking, will this movement boost prompt uh, long-term growth? Joining our discussion is Terry Williams, president of One United Bank, the largest black-owned bank in the country. Terry, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Also with us is Mersa Baradaran, professor of law at the University of Georgia and author of How the Other Half Banks. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Terry Williams, what has this recent infusion of cash meant for your bank? It has um, been a significant infusion um, in terms of deposits. And 
What it really has meant is that the black community is finally starting to recognize the power of our spending dollars. Um, we spend about $1.2 trillion a year in annual spending, and most of that spending is spent, actually only 2% of it or so, is actually spent in the black community, um, which makes it very difficult for us to you know, build wealth and to grow black-owned businesses. And black banks aren't new, of course. They've been around for a long time. But overall, they are struggling. There are far fewer banks like yours now even than there were before the financial collapse of 2008. So is this latest movement something significant that can help bring the power of black banks back, do you think? The short answer is yes, um, but um, I also just want to sort of clarify the struggling that's been happening in the in the black banking sector. Part of that was a result of the recession, but part of that was really a result of a need to invest in technology. And a lot of the black-owned banks uh, were small and just didn't have the resources to invest in online banking and mobile banking and, and bill pay. And so that uh, sort of, I, I'd call it that journey of having to move to a much more technologically based industry is one in which uh, we did lose some of our black-owned banks. But I think the ones that are remaining that you can see do have that technology are actually here to stay. Professor Mersa Baradaran, where historically has been the economic power of black banks. I mean, checking and savings is fine, and that's one thing for a community bank. But the real economic power of banks, of course, is in mortgages, is in lending, larger lending, business lending, and counteracting the kind of discrimination historically that African Americans have experienced when trying to bank in, in white-owned corporate banks. This industry has ebbed and flowed through time, and often you see the industry rise after there's a significant hardship, right? So you, you've got an industry that's responding to discrimination and segregation. And so when you've got, you know, say the Great Migration or some of the, you know, civil rights movements, you you, you see this rise in black banks. So it's an industry that's been robust, but back and forth through time. Um, these institutions that are needed to help communities escape poverty, as Terry was saying, um, you know, there's this wealth gap and black banks are really at the center of trying to do this. They are the engines of wealth growth in the black community. But often these engines end up being victims of that same poverty. So it's the same sort of catch-22. As she said, they're small banks. They have a hard time catching up with technology. And, and that's exactly because the sort of circumstances that fuel their development also end up causing their demise. Terry Williams, I mean, part of the professor's point there is that the point of black banks in the first place was to counteract a long legacy of things like redlining, housing discrimination, predatory lending. But if you grow up within that ecosystem, it's hard to grow to a point where you can fight back against that kind of discrimination. You know, it's sort of interesting. I mentioned how technology really caused the demise of some of the smaller banks, but I also think it is going to actually allow the remaining banks to prosper um, because one of the challenges that we've had as a community, as you're exactly right, it's 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 how do we serve the community while at the same time, you know, remain, you know, safe and sound. And one of the ways that uh, technology helps that is that there are actually African-Americans that don't directly live in the low to moderate income communities that we serve 
whose dollars, whose deposit dollars could really help us serve those communities. And technology allows those uh, individuals who are either um, African-American or allies of the African-American community to deposit money into these black-owned banks, which gives us low-cost funding that allows us to do the type of lending that is necessary for these banks to grow. Right. I mean, this means that anyone who can read a hashtag from wherever they are or hear about one can get on the Internet or get on an app and put money in your bank. Right. And it's, you know, FDIC insured. Our, our rates are, you know, competitive rates. And, you know, as we always say to people, it's still your money, you know, so it's not like it's a, you know, contribution. It really is a, it's a deposit. Um, but what it does is it provides lower cost funding to, you know, black owned banks, which allows us to offer the lending services that we need to offer to these communities. Professor Baradaran, I wonder if infusions of 6 to $10 million, like we've seen, while that's impressive, how far that really goes in a world where, you know, Terry's Bank is going up against Wells Fargo or Citibank, giant corporations. Uh, is that a significant amount of cash in the real world? And how much more would this technologically driven movement need for a bank like Terry's or other black banks to really start to compete in ways that, are, that make an impact in the community? The question I want to answer is, will these banks make a dent in the wealth gap? I think the answer is they will try, and they're the only ones trying, but that it takes a lot more than these banks. And just as an example, I mean, you've got – this is an industry that's been going since, like I said, the Civil War. Before Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, the month before he's assassinated, he signs into law the Freedman Savings Bank. That's the first – Black Bank, and it was Frederick Douglass was its president later. But you know, as it turned out, those funds just disappeared, right? And so throughout history, there's been these black banks, many over time. There's 20 now, but before the Great Depression, there were 135 black banks across the country, really robust um, sector. And what I've seen through studying these banks over time is that unless the bigger conditions change, unless we are are not segregated, unless there isn't a wealth cap. These banks alone can't bridge that gap. So, Terry Williams, what's next for you and One United Bank? There's this movement. There's Bank Black, 6 to $10 million on the way in, some attention uh, from your community and from the media. What's next? Our next step is, is to continue this movement to really push people to not only move their money, but to change their mindset, to move their mind, as we're calling it, and start to realize that, you know, that black money matters and that, that this is part protest in terms of taking money out of large institutions and putting them in black-owned banks. But it's also, you know, part progress in that we need, as, a, as the black community, we need to focus on our money. We need to be financially responsible. We need to figure out how to buy from black-owned businesses. We need to figure out how to bank black. We need to figure out how to move our community. There, there have been studies to show that if we could increase the amount of business that we give to black-owned businesses, we could create a million jobs in the black community. So we need to do that. That's something we can do on our own, without government support, without anybody's support. So what we need to do is what we can do, what we have control over, what, what positive steps we can take. And I think if we, and when, I should say, when we take those steps, I think others will come around. And I think that you know, this is the beginning of the movement. Anytime you have a movement, you know, it's, it always starts and trickles, but then it grows, it, it, and, and that's what we're seeing. 
Terry Williams is president of One United Bank and Mirza Baradaran, professor of law at the University of Georgia and author of The Color of Money, A History of Black Banking Out in 2017 from Harvard University Press. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks. This is Paul in Bountiful, Utah. My wife is black and I am white. We noticed that uh, after a while when we were taking in exactly parallel transactions involving the exact same bank accounts, we were being treated differently by the bank. Uh, My wife was always asked to come into the bank instead of completing the transaction in the drive-thru, and she was asked to show ID, whereas I was never asked to do either. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind I said a Georgia One of the nightmarish racist chapters of American history is documented in a new book by my guest Patrick Phillips. It's about what happened in Forsyth County, Georgia, in 1912, when white mobs terrorized and drove out the entire black population, about 1,100 people. This was the white response to two incidents, the alleged rape of a white woman by a black man and the rape and beating of a young white woman who died of her injuries. A lynch mob attacked and hanged one black suspect. Two teenagers were hanged in public executions following a short trial. My guest Patrick Phillips is one of the white people who grew up in this county when it was still all white, and people of color were definitely not welcome. His parents were among the civil rights protesters who in the 1980s protested against the county's continuing segregation. Phillips' new book, Blood at the Root, is based on his archival research as well as his interviews with townspeople and with descendants of the black people who fled in 1912. Patrick Phillips, welcome to Fresh Air. When did you realize that you lived in a town that had driven out all the black people in an act that you now describe as racial cleansing? That's a story that I first heard when I was seven years old. My parents moved from suburban Atlanta to Forsyth County, which is about 30 miles north. And so I was a new kid in a very rural county, and it was something that I heard on the school bus riding to school. You know, I had noticed that there were no black people in the county compared to the, my old neighborhood in Atlanta. And when I asked kids on the bus why that was, and, you know, I had heard lots of racist jokes, and people referred to black folks with the N-word almost entirely. Nigga! And so I asked, you know, other kids on the bus how this, why, why this was, and, you know, they told me the story. And in their, you know, in the kids' version, it was very mythic and kind of legendary. And it just went that a long, long time ago, There was a white girl who was attacked by black men, and all the white people in Forsyth banded together and ran out all the black people. So that's really the first version of the story that I heard, and that would have been in about 1977. And what did you make of that? You know, I was horrified by it um, and sort of frightened by it. And at the same time, my parents are fairly progressive and were activists. They're both from Birmingham, Alabama, so they were the rare um, liberal and progressive white Southerners at the time. And, you know, so I was a little bit horrified by it, but I was also really fascinated by the story because it suggested 
this vanished world. Um, and so I always had the feeling that the place itself was kind of haunted. And I, I thought about these vanished black people, this whole community of black people, and had always wondered, you know, as a child, I wondered, where did they go? You know, how did this happen? What, where, what did they leave behind? Which of these, you know, places that I know in the county might have once belonged to them? So, you know, it's really um, a kind of long fascination, but it always seemed mythic and really unknowable to me when I was a kid. Then you kind of witnessed some of the aftermath of the story in January of 1987 when there was what was called a Brotherhood March. It was a civil rights march, basically challenging the whiteness of the community. Would you describe the march and your family's participation in it? Yeah, that was really the first time that the situation in Forsyth gained national attention. There was It was the second Martin Luther King national holiday, and uh, a couple of white residents of Forsyth decided to finally protest publicly the ongoing segregation of the county. And they launched a march that was called the, the Brotherhood March to End Intimidation and Fear in Forsyth. And this kind of uh, led to a real outpouring of, you know, anger among the white community. And there were death threats made to the organizers. And eventually it was taken up by Hosea Williams, who was one of Martin Luther King's sort of right-hand men during the civil rights Um, battles of the 50s and 60s. And so a group of about 75 activists, including mostly African-American activists from the King Center in Atlanta, and a handful of local white people, including my mother, my father, and my sister, uh, really had a kind of modest plan, which was a short march, you know, into the town, the county seat of coming. And the goal was simply to speak out against fear and intimidation and to celebrate the King holiday. And they were met by a real mob of rock-throwing, bottle-throwing, cursing, you know, kind of racist uh, slur spewing white people from the county. And eventually the Georgia Bureau of Investigation started to arrest people in the crowd who they figured out were armed. And it really kind of escalated into this violent scene, really ugly scene that was then broadcast all over the country. And at that same moment when they were on the march, I had actually arrived late. You know, I was 16 and I, and I, I arrived, as I did often when I was 16, I arrived late to meet my parents. And so I ended up on the town square and at what I thought was the peace march. And then at a certain point, you know, I heard a PA click on and somebody screamed into a megaphone, you know, raise your hand if you love white power. And all of these young men around me, you know, raised their fist and started screaming white power. Uh, And I saw a guy go by with a noose on his, you know, on his shoulder. And, you know, it was this kind of horrifying moment where um, it all what had always been present in the county, but kind of suppressed, was suddenly very visible. And those images went all over the country and really all over the world. Did you see neighbors who you recognized as part of this angry, violent, racist mob? We did not see any of our close friends from there, but but I certainly knew faces. I saw faces that I recognized, um, people who went to the Forsyth County High School where my brother went. So a lot of a lot of familiar faces. Yes. In your acknowledgments, you thank the poet Natasha Trethaway, who urged you to write this book. Um, She says she's a woman of color and has written about blackness, but you, a white man from one of the most racist places in the country, never said a word about whiteness. So how did that inspire you to write the book? That was the other really pivotal moment, I think, when I look back, because I had had this fascination and this interest in the story, but, you know... I had always felt reluctant to really wade into the subject of race, and I, I'm not proud of that at this point, but I I had been kind of on the fence about all of this and, and 
um, resistant to taking that risk. And luckily, I have an old friendship with Natasha. She went to University of Georgia, which is just, you know, down the road from Forsyth County. So she, unlike most of the people I know in the writing world and most of the people I know in my life now in New York, Natasha actually knows a little bit of the legend. So she had heard it and she knew. And as a as a woman of color, she had heard about Forsyth County. So in about 2006, I believe it was, Natasha, you know, just turned to me kind of out of the blue. We were having a discussion about writing and what, it, you know, what, what really the mission was and what we could do as writers. And she just turned to me out of the blue and said, you know, I know about Forsyth County. I, I know about where you come from. And I was really taken aback. And she said, why are you never write about that? Why have you been silent on this? And she said, you know, do you think you're not involved? And, you know, Natasha had this wonderful way of both giving me a challenge to write about it. And also, I think, really an invitation and gave me helped me feel that I had permission to write about it. So, um, you know, so that's why I thank her in the, in the back of the book, because I don't know how much she remembers that moment. But for me, it was really pivotal. Would you describe the incidents that led to the night rides driving out all the black people from Forsyth County? Yeah, it's a story that you can find in a lot. You know, this is was not unique to Forsyth that there was a, an attempt at racial cleansing. What's really unique to Forsyth is it's a place where it succeeded and that effort was successful for, you know, almost 100 years. It was still a, a quote unquote white county when I was growing up there in the 70s and the 80s. And it really... In some ways, I mean, in the book, there's a, there's a flashpoint in 1912, but then in other ways, I find the origins of what happened in 1912 much, much earlier in the county, going all the way back to the Cherokee removals in the 1830s, because that also occurred in Forsyth County. But in 1912, a young white woman, 18-year-old white woman named May Crow, who lived really just a few miles from the house where I grew up in a little town called, a little village really called Oscarville, was found in the woods uh, I believe it was September 9th, 1912. And she was uh, beaten and she had been beaten over the head and she was bloody and unconscious. And, you know, at least the newspaper accounts were that she had been raped and she was taken to her house and, uh, you know, w- was in a coma for two weeks. And after two weeks, she died of the injuries. And the day of her funeral, in fact, there was that night was the first reported night riding and bands of white men gathered together and they started um, trying to punish the entire black community for what they believed was uh, it was reported as a kind of black insurrection was the phrase in the papers. And they believe was this a, a spree of rapes that that was largely just a hysteria and, and born out of fear. But their methods were arson. They burned black churches. They set fire to black owned homes. Uh, they fired into cabins. They posted notices, you know, warning people that they had. 24 hours, sometimes a few days to get out. Um, and, and over the course of September and October of 1912, this movement spread and ultimately succeeded. And uh, 1,098 black residents are in the census of 1910. And virtually all of them were forced out of the county during that two-month period. You said the, that there was this belief that there was a spree of rapes, of black people raping white women. Was there a spree of rapes? This was another thing that I did not know about until the research. I had heard about May Crow. It turned out the week before, there was another woman, another young woman named Ellen Grice, who the papers said, quote, uh, awakened and found a Negro man in her bed. 
And so this actually led to the whipping on the town square and the near lynching of a man named Grant Smith, who was an African-American minister and you know prominent preacher in the black churches of the county. And he was nearly lynched the week before May Crow was found in the woods. So there's no way to know exactly what happened with the Ellen Grice case. But I quote Ida B. Wells back in the 19th century pointing out, she calls it the old threadbare lie, the idea that black men rape white women. Um, in the South. And she posits that, you know, often this was a case of white women having affairs with black men and being discovered. And then there's a rape accusation. So there's no way to know that for certain. But essentially, there was a story from Ellen Grice that she had been attacked. And then a week later, May Crow is found. And all of that led to this kind of widespread belief that the whites of the town were in the midst of a black rebellion. There was this fear of a race war. That's right. Yeah, that's the phrase that's used a lot. And only a few uh, months earlier in a town called Plainville, Georgia, there had been a shootout, again, stemming from really trivial stuff where two, a black boy and a white girl were picking peaches, you know, in the same peach orchard. And apparently there was some kind of dispute. And before you know it, there was an attempt to lynch some black men uh, in Plainville. And when they fought back and fired back, it led to a posse kind of cornering them. And uh, and there was a real shootout. And the sheriff of that town, the white sheriff, uh, was killed in the gunfight. So all of this was, you know, part of this environment of fear and hysteria and, and a certainty among the white community that if they didn't do something, then the black people of the county were going to rise up. How many black people were arrested for the rape and beating of May Crow? So there were waves of of arrests, and the way that the newspapers referred to it was very telling. They talked about the the sheriff and his deputy going out and, quote, rounding up suspects. And that's really when you follow the newspaper articles and trace this sort of hour by hour, day by day, which is what I tried to do, you just see that that it's it's a little bit haphazard in that they go out to um, Big Creek, the place where Ellen Grice lived, and simply arrest the first young black men they find. And then a similar thing happens after May Crow's body is discovered. Eventually, really four people were arrested. A man named Rob Edwards, uh, his wife, Jane Daniel, her brother, Oscar Daniel, and their cousin, uh, a 16-year-old boy named Ernest Knox. And eventually, after he's arrested, Rob Edwards is dragged from the county jail by a, a mob of whites. There's the deputy... A guy named Gay Loomis tries very hard to stop it. It seems very clear that the sheriff really enabled this abduction from the jail. He went home at the key moment uh, and said he had no idea that it was going on. But eventually Rob Edwards was dragged from the county jail. He was um, beaten with crowbars. Somebody put a noose around his neck. The mob dragged him around the town square. And this is the town square, you know, where I marched in the Little League parade and where I, you know, bought my first baseball glove and stuff. They dragged him around the town square and, and eventually he was hoisted up on, you know, to the yard arm of a telephone pole. And hundreds of people joined in and fired into his corpse. So this was, you know, this lynching was really almost the immediate reaction to the jailing of Rob Edwards. And he was known as, quote, Big Rob. He was a very large man and, you know, seems to have been uh, have been targeted because he lived out in Oscarville, where May Crow was from, and had been, uh, you know, seen in the area on the day is about as, as, you know, definitive as the evidence was. So he was lynched by the mob and then 
the two boys, Ernest Knox, 16, and Oscar Daniel, 18, were arrested and eventually tried in a one-day trial. Both trials happened on a single day. And then they were hung just outside of town at a, at a hanging that became a kind of almost like a, a country fair. It became a big celebration day. And 5,000 people came out and watched the execution of, the, of these two boys. Was anybody prosecuted for the lynching of Rob Edwards who was not tried? Yeah, there's no evidence of any um, arrest, indictment, prosecution of any of the crimes committed in the entire, um, uh, you know, in the entire history of this racial cleansing from the lynch, from the whipping of Grant Smith uh, the week earlier to the lynching of Rob Edwards uh, to eventually the burning of churches, burning of of, of sharecroppers cabins. Um, I found no records of any arrests or prosecution the entire time. So we're talking about 1,100 African-Americans who were driven out of Forsyth County, Georgia, right? That's right. That's right. So what happened to the things they left behind, which included homes, belongings, animals, crops? Yeah, and especially land. You know, um, there are a lot of reports of people's belongings just simply being burned. You know, there's a guy named A.J. Julian who was a good friend, a personal friend of the governor and lived in North Georgia. And he wrote a letter to the governor describing how the mobs visited one uh, family and they first went up to the house, made sure there were no young men present. And when they figured out it was only the women and children, they went up and drove them out, apparently into a rainstorm. And A.J. Julian's letter says that after they were gone, they burned their household, quote, dogs and all. You know, they shot the dogs. They've dragged all the furniture out into the yard and, and set fire to it. So I think that was very common. There's another report in The Crisis, which was the magazine that W.E.B. Du Bois edited for the NAACP. And they sent a reporter down who was one of the only, really one of the only points of view on all of this from outside the South, a guy named Royal Freeman Nash. And he also reported on them burning everyone's belongings afterwards. Um, you know, the more complicated issue is the land. And, you know, it seems that there were people who who managed to sell their land. I think, you know, according to Royal Freeman Nash, a lot of times at very depressed prices, given their situation, you know, they were they were completely vulnerable to very low ball offers and often just would get whatever they possibly could um, for their land. And there are a few people who, who sold for a third of what they had paid for the land just a few months before. And then. Um, even more troubling is this issue of adverse possession, which was is common law in a lot of places in America. And in Georgia, um, adverse possession states it's a law meant to make help people make use of abandoned land. And so over the years that followed, a lot of white citizens simply went down to the county courthouse, started paying taxes on a lot that abutted their own which had previously been owned by a black property owner. And then after seven years, they could apply for title to the land. So, so, the, so, so the white yeah. people not only drove out the black people, they also took the land that the black people owned. I, you know, I, it, it, this is something that was hotly disputed in 1987. So after the marches, there was a, a commission created by the governor, Joe Frank Harris. And, you know, the, the state's attorney general at the time, a guy named Michael Bowers, looked into this land question. And, you know, he concluded at the time that there was not enough evidence to support the theft of land. In the years since, uh, there's a journalist named Elliot Jaspin who's also looked into this, and I looked into all of the same records that Jaspin looked at. And, you know, I think there's plenty of evidence that there were black property owners who never sold and whose land eventually just appears in another transaction. So 
in a way, the theft, I had always imagined that the land thefts happened at gunpoint, you know, in a kind of Hollywood way. In reality, it looks like it happened with a wink and a nod, you know, with a county clerk who probably noticed a gap in the title history and simply approved a sale anyway. So it, it was something that happened very, very, you know, I say in the book, it happened very quietly and one fence post at a time and one, one transaction across a counter at the county courthouse at a time. 20 years ago today, Tupac Shakur died. The rapper, actor, and activist was 25 years old. I gotta say, it feels like, number one, he was much older than that when he passed, and number two, this happened a way longer time ago. Anyway, it was a Friday, and I remember that weekend was a major love fest for the artist who represented Los Angeles so thoroughly. Now, in a couple months, a movie is coming out about his life called All Eyes on Me. I must say, I'm a tad concerned that we have biopic fatigue in the hip-hop community. There's so much footage out there that it seems that everyone and their mom from rap's golden era has a movie about. Them. But Tupac is different. There's a cottage industry of conspiracy theories about his death, and he released more music posthumously than when he was alive. His legacy is a delicate one for many devoted fans. Let's hope this film about his life can get to as wide of an audience as Shakur's career surely would have. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. America, America, Thank you, Jeff. It is a story you'll see only on Cleveland 19 News. An African-American football player at Brunswick High School is taking a stand on what he calls racial injustice. He decided to sit during the national anthem at a recent football game. Yeah, but things got out of hand when other players started writing racial slurs directed at that player because he refused to stand. Now the school is investigating. Harry Boomer has this Cleveland 19 exclusive tonight. He joins us live. Boom. I am at the Brexville Broadview Heights High School. There's a game here between Brexville Broadview Heights and Brunswick. And in the spirit of Colin Kaepernick and six and others, 16-year-old Rodney Axon took a stand by protesting racial slurs he heard in his own locker room. What's wrong with this picture? The national anthem is being played, but neither team was on the field to hear it. Rodney Axon was not going to stand out of protest because of a previous incident. It was a few players in the locker room saying, uh, we're going to use the N-word with a hard R tonight. And they didn't know my son was in the locker room. So at that time, he came from where he was at in the locker room and approached those guys and said, excuse me, what do you mean by that? They said, well, this don't include you. You stand bronze with me. And he said, well, I'm African-American. It does include me. So I appreciate if y'all don't say that. Axon says some of the players used the N-word anyway. They went on the field and stood for the national anthem. Another kid said it before the national anthem took place. So he kneeled down, took a knee, and prayed, along with two other kids that's on the team. The backlash against Rodney has been vile. They said things, called him a worthless N, and that, that upset him at that time. And it was other things said, fathers, he was ignorant for doing it. You know, he's making black people look worse than what they already are. Rodney carries a 3.5 GPA, the highest on the team. You know, did a lot of things in life to get to where we have to get to make sure our family was safe. And I thought moving to a community like Brownswood will be safe. You keep away from gun violence, then you come out here and have to deal with racial things. 
The superintendent of Brunswick Brasrue High School says that, uh, quote, I'm deeply disappointed that any of our students will participate in the publication of the tweets. Racial slurs and hate speech have no place in Brunswick schools, and those found complicit in such conduct, misconduct, he says, will be dealt with accordingly. Live at uh, Broadview, Brexville Broadview Heights, Harry Boomer, Cleveland 19. But you don't go around hurting people, especially innocent kids that can't defend themselves. A mother and her children assaulted when they say a man attacked them with pepper spray at 11 o'clock. Good evening. I'm Jeff Gianola. And I'm Jennifer Hoff. And to add insult to injury, the family says that man also yelled a racial slur at them before running away. Our Jennifer Dowling talked with the children and their mother in this crime alert. The family didn't want to be fully identified for safety reasons. One of the young boys actually had to go to the hospital after the assault. They worry that if this man isn't caught, this could happen to somebody else. I was mad, angry, and traumatized at the same time. 12-year-old Leonard says he and his brothers, 11 and 7, were sitting in their car in this neighborhood waiting for their mom and grandma. And a guy on a bicycle rode past us and asked us, are we okay? After Leonard replied yes, the man rode away staring at them. Without them knowing it, he circled back, snuck up to the open window, and hit them with the spray. I couldn't breathe, and my body felt like it was on fire. It was burning very bad. I was scared. The children leapt from the car, screaming. He pepper sprayed me in my eye, and then I got out the car, ran into the tree. Me and him, um, was running into a shutter. During the chaos, the man sprayed toward Frazier and her mom, yelling the N-word. She tried to get into the car to follow him, but the fumes were too much. It literally was felt like it was eating my face up. Frazier works in the medical field. She says the worst feeling for her, helplessness. How could this happen? And I couldn't save my kids. I got in the shower five times and my skin was just still burning. Leonard hit the hardest, had to go to the hospital. Medical staff said they suspected this was bear spray. Neighbors have rallied around the family. You know, I think we all have to look out for each other's children. Our prayers are with the family. The family says they devoted their lives to service. Frazier says if the man needed help, they would have provided it. It really hurts because one of my brother has special needs and I don't think that was right of him for him to do that to us. I'm very disappointed that somebody would do this because, you know, my kids are good kids. Frazier says her insurance company says her car may now be a total loss. If you know who may have done this, make sure to contact Portland Police. Not just racism and hate crimes, but charges of murder and arson. Tonight, we have exclusive details. Two people have been arrested for spray-painting swastikas and racial slurs on a home in the East Bay. They're also being charged with conspiracy to commit murder, torture, and arson. It happened last week in Antioch. NBC Bay Area's Elise Kirshner is at the courthouse in Martinez with the inside story. Elise. Well, Raj, the two suspects faced a judge inside the courthouse here behind me late this afternoon, and we've learned the two suspects allegedly plotted for at least a week on how they were going to torture and kill the Antioch family. We've also discovered authorities are looking for a third person who may have been involved in the incident.
Roger Martin saw the swastikas and racial slurs spray painted all over the home next door on McCormick Court in Antioch. Well, I was upset. Of course I'm upset. You know, they're, they're friends. Police say 27-year-old Roy Savari and 25-year-old Christine McDaniel targeted their neighbor, Lloyd Shackleford. That is the only reason why this resident was targeted and it was not a random incident. Authorities say the two intentionally started a fire to trap Shackleford, along with his mother, sister, and her four children all sleeping inside. Surveillance video shows three Molotov cocktails being thrown at the home in the middle of the night last Wednesday. Racial slurs that were painted on the house. No one was hurt, but according to court documents, the two started plotting to murder and torture the family at least a week before the hateful vandalism. Cell phone records show on September 1st, Roy texted Christine, I have a rope and you got the tree. She responded, I've got the cross and some matches. Darn right, want to torture an N-word with me. Victoria Adams with the NAACP says it's hate that cannot be tolerated. I don't know why they did what they did. However, it, it is a crime of hate. So it is not acceptable. They're good people. We like them and we're glad and hope they stay. I hope they don't feel threatened. And some of the charges against the suspects include attempted murder, torture and arson, as well as hate crime enhancements. Now they are being held at the county jail here. We did request a jailhouse interview with them both. They denied our requests. Reporting live from Martinez tonight, I'm Elise Kirshner, NBC Bay Area News. Okay, thank you, Elise. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Donald Trump spent today working with fresh material to make his case against Hillary Clinton. He was largely quiet about Clinton's recent health issues, but is pressing his opponent over these comments from a fundraiser Clinton held on Friday night. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. <laughs> right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. NPR Scott Detrow is in Asheville, North Carolina, where Donald Trump spoke to supporters this evening. And Scott, uh, what else did you hear from Donald Trump today? Well, well, Trump has really taken this and made it fit into the message of his campaign. And that's the basic argument that Hillary Clinton looks down on all of Trump's supporters. Trump, and he's been saying this for a while because he's the one in the race standing with average people. He calls them the voiceless. And he's arguing Clinton really despises these voters and is the candidate for the establishment and the elite. Uh, this evening, Trump actually invited about a half dozen supporters on stage with him to respond to what Clinton said. We are going to make America great again. And Hillary needs to take a nap. mother. I work full time and I am voting for Donald Trump. And Mrs. Clinton, you can go home. That was one supporter whose name we haven't been able to catch yet. But Trump basically is arguing that Clinton is uh, the elite candidate. He's there for the people. Now, Hillary Clinton has said over the weekend um, that she shouldn't have quantified this statement by using the term half. But her campaign is fundamentally standing by the basic characterization of, of some Trump supporters, right? Absolutely. And in fact, they seem to be happy to have this conversation. Uh, they responded to an ad that Trump put out about this today by saying, 
Well, here are several different examples of Trump talking about black communities, about Muslim communities, talking about Mexican immigrants, all in ways that have caused controversy and offended a lot of people. And uh, in fact, they were using Hillary Clinton's Twitter account today to circulate video of Governor Mike Pence on CNN. He was asked whether he called David Duke, that's the former, former Ku Klux Klan member who's endorsed uh, Donald Trump, deplorable. Pence said he doesn't want Duke's support, but he's not in the name-calling business. That was a clip the Clinton campaign was sending around. So all in all, they seem happy to have this uh, conversation, even if it seems to have played directly into Trump's hands in terms of the line that he's been uh, talking about for months now. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the candidate's health since Hillary Clinton fell ill uh, at that 9-11 commemoration in New York yesterday. And her campaign is promising to release more detailed health records. Uh, I mentioned that be- at the beginning that Donald Trump has been quiet about this, but has he been asked about it today? Uh, he was asked a couple times during cable news appearances this morning. He said that basically he wants Hillary Clinton to get better. He wished her well. But, you know, he's been raising questions about Clinton's health for months now. Here he was on CNN in March. I think she doesn't have the stamina. Uh, you watch her uh, her life. You watch how she'll go away for three, four days. She'll come back. Uh, she'll go. I just don't think she has the stamina. You know, and this had been a drumbeat from the Trump campaign for months. And, and they weren't talking about pneumonia there. They were talking about broader health problems or insinuating them, at least. Uh, lastly, Donald Trump's health records. Has he said anything more about his own? Nothing yet. He says uh, more will come out later this week, that he just had a physical. But it looks like he may release that information on the Dr. Oz show. And Dr. Oz, uh, of course, has had a lot of questions raised about his credibility as well. NPR's Scott Detrow traveling with the Trump campaign in North Carolina. Thank you. Thank you. Canada. We should move to Canada. I want to tell you a story about a lawyer who walked into a law building and was denied entry. Sounds simple enough until you understand that the lawyer is a prominent black Toronto lawyer named Selwyn Peters, and that he was denied entry into the building by security guard for no very clear reason. He was with a guest, another uh, law student, and um, it's very interesting, actually, that this is happening to Selwyn Peters because this has happened to him before. About three years ago, Selwyn Peters was in a lawyer's lounge in a courtroom in Brampton. And once again, he was stopped and asked to identify himself. He uh, had a human rights tribunal case about that incident, and he won. And so now he has gone back to the human rights tribunal to ask once again for $75,000 in damages and mandatory training for the security guards after this incident, which he describes as racial profiling. Selwyn Peters is on the line with me right now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Desmond. Selwyn, could you just first explain to our listeners what the Law Society building that you were in is and what its function is? Well, I was at Osgood Hall, which is the... um the home of the Law Society of Upper Canada, and um, my fees, as well as other lawyers' fees, uh, maintain a library there called the Great um, Law Library. Plus, uh, there's Convocation Hall, and there's conference facilities, and, you know, the, the lawyers, there's a lawyer's lounge and locker room. There's, it's the facil- it has facilities that cater for lawyers right. and law students. And now you were visiting uh, with a law student, and you attempted to enter the premises. And what happened? 
uh, well, in front of me, there were about three or four white women. They walked past. Um, it was quite routine. The door was open. They, they got in. Um, the security guard was sitting about about 12 footsteps, more or less, from where uh, the door was. So he got up and he walked towards us. Um, he didn't get up when those, those women were approaching the door. Um, he was pretty aggressive. He wanted to know who I was. I said, I am a lawyer. I took up my wallet, and it has the Burgundy Law Society card in it. I showed him. He wanted the card to come out of the um, wallet holder. Well, it took a while to get it up because, quite frankly, I've never been asked to do that before. And so <laughs> the card was sealed right in. So I had to juggle it a bit, get it out when I got it out. He um, he looked at it and he said the card is expired. Um, I, I, I'm not sure you're still a lawyer. Um, you're not getting in here. Now, there's a protocol for when something like this happens if a lawyer doesn't have their card and needs to get into the building. They thought this through already, right? So explain what the protocol is. Well, there is a protocol and the, 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 there's, there's a double-sided edge to the protocol. If you do not believe the person is a lawyer, there's a scanner. You can invite the person to enter, to um, empty their pockets and put their belongings on, on, a, on a tray and walk through the scanner for security purposes. But you, if, weren't, uh, you weren't given the option of doing that. I wasn't given the option of doing that. Neither was, neither was I given the option through the protocol of the, um, the security guard taking my ID card and saying, excuse me for a moment, sir, let me just verify that your membership in good standing is still current. Right, because you your card was expired, that. but you're still a member of the law That's society. right. I am a member in good standing. <laughs> Let's get that right. Um, and it just shows you, Desmond, the sort of disrespect. It shows you the sort of the undercurrent of, of systemic racism that is in law. People speak about racism in law, and that's why I challenge these things. I challenge the, the um, PILA Association, and I won it. That's right. And, and I'm challenging this now because black lawyers and other lawyers, they whisper about it. They whisper about social and professional exclusion. They whisper about systemic racism, and most of them um, wouldn't take a stand on it when, when these things happen to them. Selwyn and, Peters is a Toronto lawyer who is filing a complaint at the Human Rights Tribunal after being barred entry to the Law Society building, of which he is a member. Uh, so when you had a student with you that day, um, can you talk about, the, and this was a black student as I understand it, can you talk about the impact that this had on the student who you had brought to visit the Law Society for the first time? Well, it, it not only impacted the student, the student was visiting from Ottawa. But the student is from the West Indies. His father is an attorney general of a country, and his mother is a high court judge. And so when his mother heard about it, she said, I, don't, I do not want my son at any place where he's not welcome. Hmm. She was very concerned about what happened at the Law Society, and she's a sitting high court judge. Um, for the student, it impacted, it impacted him a lot. Because here he is with somebody who is mentoring him. Here he is at the, the seat of lawyer's power, the regulator of lawyers for the first time. 
and that's the exclusion that he encountered. So when you mentioned, when you were speaking to the Toronto Star about this, uh, and talking about the other time that this happened to you, that you are not just a black man, but you have dreadlocks as well. Well, that's right. Why do, do. You, why do you think that that's worth mentioning in all of this? Well, because um, sometimes um, uh, I, I suppose that people expect lawyers to fit a certain mold, they, they, to have a certain appearance. So, so I, 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 suppose, I suppose my head should be bald. And, and so sometimes people see um, see sometimes people stereotype persons with dreadlocks, and so when you have the combination of of race and ethnicity and dreadlocks, it, it creates a potent mix of stereotyping. Hmm. This person is out of place. This person doesn't belong here. This person is up to no good. Finally, I want to ask you, Selwyn. You mentioned that other lawyers that you know who are black in our city, they talk about this, but they're reluctant to do anything about similar kinds of racism that they face. Why do you think that is? What are they afraid of by coming forward as you have, in your opinion? Um, They're afraid of the law society. They're afraid of, because remember, the law society is um, a bastion of white privilege. I mean, I mean, the percentage of black lawyers is like two point something percent or less of the lawyers um, that are members of the law society. And so, any, so most lawyers would be considering their future, would be considering how their, their colleagues think about them, mm-hmm. what their colleagues think about them going forward and, and, you know, raising hell against the law society or raising issues of concerns against the law society are they concerned about clients? Clients may feel that people may look at them a different way because this lawyer may be in the bad books of the law society. You know, any number of of different uh, reasons um, lawyers may have. But um, since this incident has happened, um, white lawyers from all over have written me, have approached me, have spoken to me, and most of them don't have a law society ID. This ID card that they spoke about is not something that's mandatory. It's encouraged. Selwyn, we're going to keep following your Human Rights Tribunal complaint, and I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to speak with us. And thank you very much, sir, for having me on. Yes, my pleasure. Selwyn Peters, a Toronto lawyer who, for the second time, has been faced with a very serious issue of racial profiling and is fighting back a second time. I want to be a cop. So... We've got a great cop in West Virginia, and I want to tell you about him because uh, there are stories about um, cops doing the wrong things oftentimes, but you've got to also hear the stories about great cops. Stephen Mater uh, was in West Virginia, and uh, not only is he a cop, he uh, uh, used to be in the military as well. Let me tell you about him. He grew up in Weirton, West Virginia, graduated from Weir High School, married his high school sweetheart five years ago, and was raising two small boys, now ages four and one, uh, in the city when he got uh, the job that's, as a police officer after serving four years with the Marines, including a tour in Afghanistan. So this guy's American hero for serving abroad. Now he's serving his local community as a police officer. Wonderful so far, right? Well, he gets a call to respond to a person who might be suicidal. So, and this guy's name is Ronald D. R.J. Williams, Jr. So his sister actually called it in and said... Look, he's not going to hurt anybody else, but I'm worried that he's going to hurt himself. Can you come out and help? 
So Officer Mader shows up to help. Well, at that point, uh, Williams has a gun. So now you know how these stories uh, end oftentimes in the news. You know, we, and if they end positively, it doesn't make the news. I get that too. I understand that. Um, but in this case, here's what happened. Uh, Mader says, I saw then that he had a gun, but it was not pointed at me, Mr. Mader recalled, noting the silver handgun was in the man's right hand hanging at his side and pointed at the ground. Now, already that's an incredible restraint given the climate of how police are trained in this country because oftentimes there'll be shootings when there's no gun at all, when there's a knife or no weapon, or it's a 12-year-old, or it's a toy gun. But he sees the gun and does not shoot him. He says, I told him, put down the gun, and he's like, quote, just shoot me. And I told him, I'm not going to shoot you, brother. Stephen Mader, American hero. There are good cops. There are good cops. There's a lot of good cops out there. And, you know, I've uh, talked to uh, a lot of cops on this show who uh, say, for example, some that have military training, like Michael A. Wood Jr. He says the military training actually helps you. And Mader also talked about that. He said when he was in the Marines, you're going to do a tour in Afghanistan. You can't assume that everybody's a bad guy because then you go shoot up civilians. You're going to have more trouble. They're going to hate you. and You're going to be in more danger. No, you've got to analyze the whole situation, and they train you on that. And he uses police academy training as well. Wonderful, good story so far. Uh, By the way, wait, 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 it's not over. He says, then he starts flicking his wrist to get me to react to it. I thought I was going to be able to talk to him and de-escalate it. I knew that it was a suicide by cop situation. Okay, the guy's got it perfectly analyzed. All right, wonderful. If the story ended there, it would have been great. But it doesn't end there. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette explains, but just then, two other Weirton officers arrived on the scene. Mr. Williams walked toward them waving his gun, later found to be unloaded, between them and Mr. Mader, and one of them shot Mr. Williams in the back of the head, just behind his right ear, killing. Now, Mader had it under control, new guys show up, okay. Mater doesn't blame them at all. He says, look, man, they showed up and the guy's got a gun. I, I understand what they did. It's perfectly understandable. They, they didn't have the context that they, I had. I had a little extra training too, but that's not the main part of it. He's like, they just didn't know the information that I knew. So he defends his fellow cops. Did his fellow cops defend him? No. Believe it or not, the story's about to get worse. Police Chief Rob Alexander brings him in and talks to him, along with Weirton City Manager Travis Bloser. And the police chief tells Mater, we're putting you on administrative leave, and we're going to do an investigation to see if you're going to be an officer here. You put two other officers in danger. Oh, my God. They're going to punish him for not shooting the guy. They got a call to help that guy. The sister called it in, saying he's a danger to himself. Can you come help him? The cops are about to punish the cop who was right. It was an unloaded gun. They shouldn't have shot him. They're not really going to do it, are they? On June 7th, a Weirton officer delivered Mater a notice of termination letter dated June 6th, which said by not shooting Mr. Williams, he, quote, failed to eliminate a threat. They fired him. They fired him for not shooting the guy. Even though, at that point, they know that his sister had called it in asking for help for the guy. They know that his weapon was unloaded. They know he did the right thing. 
They fired him not despite the fact that he did the right thing. They fired him because he did the right thing. Well, that embarrasses the rest of us. How dare you not shoot someone? We told you your job is if there's even the vaguest threat, I don't care that his sister wants to save his life. I don't care that that's why you were called in in the first place. You shoot him and you kill him. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And you're telling me this is not this problem is not systemic? It's just a few bad apples? No, there are a few good apples. And the minute that they are located by the rest of the system, they are eliminated and fired. There are great cops in this country, but they are not rewarded. Oftentimes, just like this, they are punished. The problem is not the people. Cops are not evil. That's preposterous. They're not any better or worse than any of us. The problem is the system. We are training them to kill people at the vaguest threat no matter what. And if they do kill them, we make sure that there are no consequences. But if they don't kill them, sometimes there are consequences for those good cops, and they lose their jobs over it. You're still telling me that there's no problem at all with how we train cops in this country? That's the craziest thing I ever heard. Again, this morning was some breaking news in the Sandra Bland case. There's been a settlement reached between uh, Waller County officials and the Texas Department of Public Safety. Uh, I got a call last night from Bland family attorney, Cannon Lambert, with regards to this case. We, of course, are about to get him on the phone in just one second. You might recall Sandra Bland, a Chicago woman who was in Prairie View, Texas, where she was uh, driving on campus there to start a new job. Uh, in that particular city when all of a sudden she was pulled over by a Texas Department of Public Safety uh, trooper. That particular trooper uh, pulled her over and then when he asked her, when he asked her to, when he asked her to uh, get out of her car, actually put out her cigarette, that's when he then said get out and begin to arrest her. You're watching the video here. This is the video that took place uh, there when uh, she was in jail, taken to the jail. Uh, supposedly, the the uh, folks in the jail were supposed to check on her every hour per the law there, but they actually didn't. They actually didn't. Uh, and so then her body was then found uh, there in her jail cell. Uh, the uh, medical examiner ruled that Sandra Bland uh, died of a suicide. Her family uh, sued Waller County. They also sued, uh, they also sued officials uh, with the state. That officer, Brian Encina, he actually was fired by the Texas Department of Public Safety, uh, but the grand jury declined to indict him. Uh, in Prairie View, in Prairie View, uh, they actually, uh, there's a memorial there. These are photos that I actually shot when I was in Prairie View just a couple of weeks ago. This is the spot uh, where Sandra Bland uh, was actually arrested. Uh, you also see, uh, again, there are, there are photos out there. There are photos out there uh, as well. Also, Prairie View A&M uh, uh, created this, a Sandra Bland Parkway on that street. 
street where she was actually uh, discovered, uh, where she was actually arrested in Sandra Bland Parkway. And they also they also plan also plan on they also plan on uh, building a park uh, there in Prairie View uh, as well. And so it looks like now we have uh, Bland family attorney Cannon Lambert uh, as well as Sandra Bland's uh, mother uh, as well. Uh, Cannon, first of all, thank you for joining us. So please explain please please explain to us, Cannon, uh, what is the breaking news in this case um, that you called me about last night? Well, listen, I have to tell you, we're happy to report that um, we were able to bring a resolution that Ms. Geneva was happy to, uh, to be a part of. Uh, this is a real warrior that's sitting next to me. Uh, one of the things that she made sure of is that she demanded that there were three basic uh, changes that had to take place associated with this settlement. Uh, one, first and foremost, they're going to be using electronic wand systems at that jail so that no more falsification of records can ever take place. And that's all because of her. It's all because of her. Um, but in addition to that, they're going to make sure that they have nurses on staff that are going to be there at all shifts. And then in addition to that, uh, they're going to be looking to approach legislatures, uh, legislators to try and bring about some substantive change that we're going to be a part of as well. Uh, well, Geneva, well, first of all, was there also a financial settlement with, uh, the, with Waller County in the state of Texas? Yes, there was. Yeah, we, we were able to resolve the case for $1.9 million in total. Uh, the $100,000 is from DPS, which is the maximum under state law by the TTCA uh, that the DPS is uh, uh, able to provide. But then the $1.8 million will be coming from Waller County, uh, the jail. Uh, Geneva, your thoughts about this? It surely has been very difficult uh, for you and your family. Uh, there's so much attention uh, all across the country on this particular case as well. Um, why was it so important for you not to solely have a financial settlement, but to have these other changes? Number one, I want to say good morning, Roland. Thank you for having us on. And I want to say the blood still works. I'm excited about what God has done here. Uh, the importance for me was the fact that all across the nation, nobody has been addressing these uh, uh, deaths that have been occurring. And so it was important that we have something put in place to say, no, we're not going to operate with business as usual anymore. No, we're really going to make some real changes that we know will make a difference in the lives of many others. I can't bring Sandy back. She's not coming back. But I got to tell you, there will be lots of lives saved and changed with this new agreement. Uh, there are other uh, cases all across the country where individuals have died uh, in local jails. Are you also uh, looking to try to make this uh, a, a national initiative as well? I mean, you made it clear that uh, that as a result of this, uh, you now will be speaking for Rosandra. Are you hoping that other states will require these uh, th these sort of uh, requirements in their local jails? I am not hoping only. I am praying feverishly, and hopefully this will be a nationwide effort. And I say that because nationwide we've been losing lives for a very long time. So why not have it a nationwide effort to change the way that we do things? This is not absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely. not the end. This is the beginning. This and is the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited this morning. God is good. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Is that a real gun? It's a toy gun. Columbus police and the city's Old Town East neighborhood are coming to grips with the tragic news that a white police officer shot and killed a black 13-year-old boy. Officers say Tyree King was a suspect in a robbery and had a gun. 
It turns out it was a BB gun. In the wake of the shooting, city officials ask for calm and promise a full investigation. On Wednesday evening, Lindsay Nelson walked out the back door of her home on 29 Hoffman Street to find a crime scene in the alleyway. There was one kid face down right here, another young kid. We knew that they were really young instantly. According to police reports, officers were investigating an armed robbery in the Near East Side when they spotted three men who matched the description of the suspects. When officers approached the men, Tyree King and one other suspect ran. Officers followed them to the alleyway, and police say when the officers attempted to take them into custody, King drew what officers suspected was a gun from his waistband. That's when one officer shot King multiple times. And then the other, the kid that was shot was laying here, and there was like three or four officers standing around. That's right when it had happened. Ian Petrozzoli watched from his second-story apartment as King was taken away in an ambulance. I later found out that they were taking the children's, so obviously it was a, a juvenile. And then uh, woke up this morning and saw that it was a 13-year-old uh, boy who was carrying a BB gun. King was pronounced dead soon after he arrived at Nationwide Children's Hospital. At a press conference at City Hall, Police Chief Kim Jacobs showed an image of the BB gun that was recovered from the scene. Our officers carry a gun that looks practically identical to this weapon. As you can see, it looks like a firearm that could kill you. Police say Officer Brian Mason fired the fatal shots. A nine-year veteran, Mason is white and was recently transferred to the neighborhood. Columbus police confirmed that Mason was involved in another fatal shooting in 2012. Jacobs promised a full investigation and a referral to County Prosecutor Ron O'Brien. We want as quick an investigation as possible if it's thorough. When Pastor Frederick Lamar at the Missionary Baptist Church heard about King's death, he made a visit to the home of King's grandmother. And I just gave her a hug and just held her for about five minutes. After working for 20 years on the city's south side, Pastor Lamar says he's grown accustomed to supporting families like the Kings, who have lost a child to gun violence. They're just broken. They're broken, you know, crying. Um, just everyone just sitting around grieving. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther, while showing support for police officers, promised a full investigation. He said King's death is unacceptable. With such easy access to guns, whether they're firearms or replicas, there is something wrong in this country, and it is bringing its uh, epidemic to our city streets. And a 13-year-old is dead in the city of Columbus. The group, the People's Justice Project, has raised questions about the shooting and police training. Group organizer Tammy Alsada. And so before you get to shooting a child down because he's got a BB gun in a state that it is lawful to carry a weapon, then what are we talking about? And the justice for who? According to police, there is no known footage of the shooting at this time. Ginther says this is an example of why police will be required to wear body cameras early next year. Esther Honig, WOSU News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 17th, two thousand. 16. So I have been told this is our compensatory call-in. Uh, looking forward to hearing observations, uh, counter-racist strategies, uh, things that stood out over the past seven days. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, 
Uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number to dial again, 641-715-3640. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, feel free if you would like to follow. We are on Twitter at Until Justice. Certainly, uh, you can find our Facebook page as well. But again, on Twitter at Until Justice. Uh, you can email if you have a question, you get confused, you can't find something in the archives. Email untiljustice at gmail.com. Untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, we'll try to respond uh, as soon as possible. Uh, with that, a few quick things I uh, wanted to make sure I mentioned before we get started uh, number one the banking segment and I'd be very curious to hear uh, some of the thoughts observations from listeners on this also um, the bank black segment I know we played a snippet dealing with that maybe a week or two ago it wasn't that long maybe within the last month I'm pretty sure it was in the month of September uh, where Killer Mike uh, he's a musician uh, he was commentating a lot uh, with uh, Bernie Sanders campaign earlier in the year. Um, he has been encouraging black people, particularly in Georgia. I think he's an Atlanta resident in uh, the Georgia area uh, to invest their funds in uh, black banks. That that's one of the things that we can should be doing to work against racism, white supremacy. Uh, I was very eager to hear people's input on that. We had a sound clip dealing with that this week. Um, I thought it was very interesting, particularly towards the end of that segment where uh, Mersra Baradaran, I hope I'm not mangling her name, but that looks like it's kind of in the ballpark of what her name is. But she was asked, this is a, a black author, uh, professor, she was asked if the banking black campaign, if that will help with regards to the wealth disparity, racism, white supremacy, and economics. And she said, the question that I would rather answer, or she was, she said, the question I would rather uh, answer is not whether or not this is going to have a substantial impact with these banks uh, competing against, you know, giant corporations and what have you. Uh, the question I would rather answer, I'd have to go back to make sure I'm getting it correctly, but I think the interviewer, he asked uh, how or if these banking black efforts if that could really have a substantial impact, getting that $6 million influx of cash, if that would have a substantial impact against Wells Fargo and these other banking giants that are dominated by whites, obviously. And she said, the question I would rather ask is about the wealth disparity. Is it going to have an impact on that? And uh, I think the answer that she gave was no, uh, which I thought was hugely important uh, because I've been hearing this. Uh, discussed quite a bit over the past month or so. I've heard a lot of commentary about black economics and how much money turns over in the quote-unquote 
uh, black community. And I feel like frequently people are grossly overstating uh, the amount of economic power that black people have. Uh, I mean, you can throw out all the cool statistics. I'm not an economist. Uh, I think that's, you know, evident. Anyone who's listened to the context of white supremacy. But uh, my understanding, uh, the amount of wealth that whites have, the amount of uh, financial might that whites have, it is astronomical in comparison to what you're talking about with black people worldwide. I wouldn't care if you include all the black people on the planet and how much economic growth you say is happening on the continent or anywhere else. Uh, you could assemble a small number of whites and they would have more dollars, more economic, more economic might than all of the black people in this area of the world combined. That is the reality of racism, white supremacy. They just had a report that came out within the last few days talking about this is about to be the largest transfer of wealth in history. And they had photos of white people, not black people. Uh, you might have for every Oprah Winfrey or handful of blacks that you can name that have money the vast majority of black people do not you do not have economic resources we've talked about this before uh some of the books that we've done thomas shapiro the hidden cost of being african-american Meiju louis the color of wealth they outline this clearly even jared ball one of our former uh guests he just did a program he talked about the exact same thing that consistently the amount of dollars that black people have it is grossly overrepresented when people talk about all this. I feel like it's linked to people when they say that, you know, what we need to do is go into business for ourselves and that will solve the problem with racism. And that is absolutely false. Uh, but I would, you know, appreciate hearing feedback on that. I'm certainly not encouraging anyone not to uh, bank at a blank, uh, at a black bank. I'm not saying that, uh, but I would just remind folks, we did study a black banker, Alden McDonald Jr., when we did our book study session on Katrina after the flood. Alden McDonald Jr., uh, he has Liberty Bank in the uh, Louisiana area. He has many, many branches beyond just New Orleans. Uh, but we talked about him a lot. He was one of the main figures in Katrina after the flood. Yes, he did well. But the lament that he had at the end of the book, and even Gary Ribman touched on this, was, yes, he's done great. His banks, he's about to have like a billion dollars uh, with his investments and what have you. But the black people in the greater Louisiana area, whether they're banking with him or not, they are not great at all, not even close to it. And I think they got to some of that at the end of that segment, just about as long as you're within the context of racism, white supremacy, that is going to dominate any you know attempts at gaining wealth, dollars, coins, wherever you're banking at, uh, black institution or no, but I could be in error myself. I definitely want to hear feedback on that. Next thing, uh, with sequencing, this is something I've touched on a lot over the years, uh, on the cows. When you hear a news report, it really doesn't have to be a news report, but that's something I pay particular attention to. The sequencing of different reports is very important. Uh, I don't care which news outlet you watch, uh, Al Jazeera, BBC, NPR, wherever, even if it's print news, not even just necessarily video or audio, even print news, the sequencing of reports. I pointed out earlier this year when they had uh, the Washington Post, they had a news report about Dylan Roof and we need to be sympathetic with him and not champion and celebrate him getting the death penalty. And then right next to it, they had a report about Nate Parker and how he owes us more than words. That is important. That is deliberate. In my view, or I'm not in my view, I can tell you one of the things that I did this week, I try to do this on uh, a weekly basis in how I sequence the audio reports that you're hearing. The sequencing of that Bank Black report before it, you heard the segment about Jack Daniels and how 
an enslaved black person was involved in Jack Daniels becoming, you know, this monster profitable uh, corporation to sell spirits, whiskey, uh, as they call it. Uh, Nearest Green uh, was the enslaved black person's name. I don't think they're going to be able to point to any black people in Lynchburg, Tennessee, or anywhere else who have benefited from the sales of Jack Daniels. That is one of the ways where whites, they're always sucking the wealth from uh, our labor Uh, our uh, intellectual creations, our intellectual property, they're always doing that. That is what the system of white supremacy is designed to do. Uh, You can look at the example with Nearest Green and Jack Daniels, or you can look at Nelly. I think that came out this week where all of the millions of dollars that he has made for racists, race soldiers who dominate the entertainment industry, he is broke uh, and seeking financial help. That is what the system of white supremacy is designed to produce. Uh, sandwiching the banking black clip, right? So that was one. The next, the clip that followed that was the segment about the book, Blood at the Root, about the uh, white terrorism, racial cleansings, as they were called in Forsyth County, Georgia. That's a report. We've talked about that before on this program repeatedly. We had Elliot Jaspin as a guest on the program. He was mentioned in that segment. Uh, his book, Buried in the Bitter Waters, a very important segment. The thing that I think is most important that should be highly emphasized when we talk about economics that happened, black people being driven out and their land being stolen, that happened at minimum 250 times, excuse me, I said it incorrectly, that happened more than 250 times in this area of the world. That's according to Elliot Jaspin. He said that explicitly when he was a guest on this program back in the summer of 2010. It's in his book. He said just going and looking at the census data, doing the history, it happened repeatedly over and over and over. It's not just Rosewood. It's not just Tulsa. It's not just Slocum, Texas. Uh, It happened in Kentucky over and over and over again. Uh, And Equally important, N.D.B. Connolly, he was a guest on this program, uh, one of the best books that I've read, uh, along with Buried in the Bitter Waters, uh, A World More Concrete, black scholar N.D.B. Connolly, he said that whites have gotten increasingly efficient at this method of confiscating black property, black land. It used to be you have a mob of white goons, white thugs. They come in, they kill people, rape people, make them leave. You got 24 hours to get out. Now they do things like, you know, gentrification, property taxes. Uh, This is a drug den. Lots of different ways, eminent domain to take black property. But I thought that was important and related to when we talk about economics and wealth. This sort of thing is why you do not have black wealth, black economic might. Whites are able to come in and knock things over, so you have to restart uh, every generation. Mr. Fuller has talked about this as well. You had tons of people. We had Chris Everett on the program, his documentary, Wilmington on Fire, same thing, where you have black people, they lose everything, and they have to start all over. This has generational consequences, generational terrorism, when you lose everything and you have nothing to pass on to anyone. You can't even take care of yourself because you've lost it all. Whites are able to do this repeatedly again. Hurricane Katrina, another illustration. Next thing I wanted to make sure I touched on, speaking of Hurricane Katrina, uh, I was around a victim of racism. Uh, They were filling out job applications, uh, student, college student looking to get a little side gig, make some coins, filling out an application for Walmart. This is in Washington State. And they stop and say, whoa, Gus, look at this. They have a question asking if you lived in the Hurricane Katrina damage area in 2005. And I thought, wow, that is, that is profound on many levels uh, because it's more than 10 years, more than a decade after the 
levee failure, the storm and everything that took place, the white terrorism, whites going around and shooting and killing black people. Uh, and it's in Washington state. It's not like we're close. It's not like this is, you know, Texas or Mississippi, someplace that is close to uh, Louisiana, close to the damage area. And I stopped and my first thought was, well, maybe they have some sort of uh, like affirmative action program to help the Katrina refugees, quote unquote, give them, you know, we'll give them a job, we'll look out. And then I stopped and I remembered since we did so much research on that, they stopped hiring black people who were victims of the levee failure, Hurricane Katrina and all of the white terrorism that happened with that event. Uh, They said specifically that they had uh, PTSD, anxiety, uh, that they were having a lot of emotional distress uh, and so that they did not want to hire these people. Uh, and I, it took me some time. I'm still trying to find the exact reference. I might even have to message uh, Gary Rivlin because I'm sure he saw the report. But I remember that. And I was like, wow, if that is still in effect, like, ooh, make sure we avoid, you know, any of the niggers uh, who were down there from the storm. We don't want them to come in and still be upset talking about their family members that they lost or property that they lost or how they got messed over by the insurance industry or how the NOPD was not helpful or how they got stopped at gunpoint trying to flee uh, to safety. We don't want to hear any of that. Get on fine. You know, go, go someplace else and get a job. Just incredible illustrate. And again, black economics difficulty getting even employment just because you were a victim of white terrorism and hurricane Katrina 11 years ago. Uh, last thing I will get in. I could save this for later. I'll save this for later. The number again is six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If we could not use metaphors, uh, I fail at that myself. Sometimes uh, I used the metaphor earlier in the broadcast today. As I said, I make an effort to just point out uh, that on this program exclusively, uh, we want to try to be direct, explicit, obvious, flagrant about what it is that we're talking about. Uh, It's been my experience frequently. Whites, they will use metaphors. Uh, They are being deceptive, uh, deliberately so, Uh, particularly if they're talking about racism, white supremacy. They will compare things that are not equivalent. They will use analogies, uh, metaphors, comparisons, where they know they're comparing two things that are simply un- equal. Uh, I think Thomas in New York pointed that out where some uh, race soldier on his job said that Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy was like the Hurricane Katrina for them and he just asked questions to to reveal the falsehood of the metaphor. So if we could not do that, thank you kindly. Just be direct and I will prompt folks uh, about that. Uh, Sometimes even on this program people get very carried away and every other sentence will be some sort of uh, metaphor or analogy and they build. They get more grand as they go uh, with the metaphors. Just be specific, exact about what it is that you're trying to communicate. If you could watch the background noise, I would really appreciate it. If you know you're in a loud environment, use your mute button. Uh, then you can just unmute yourself when you're ready to talk. And then once you're done, you can mute yourself. Greatly appreciate it. I can mute your line for you if, you know, that is a problem, but just it really compromises the quality of the broadcast. Uh, with that, we will get to the phone lines. Uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, the first few people that dialed in with a hand up, lines are open, and I'll just get to folks in the order that they called in. First few people that dialed in with a hand up, uh, feel free to share. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. So, um, 
this is one of the things that we talked about in the Black Student Union that I did yesterday. Um, Colin Kaepernick and uh, one of the players, the quarterback from the 49ers, and how he didn't how he didn't stand up for the um, national anthem. I actually agree with what he did, and I actually support it because you shouldn't have to stand up for a song that represents your country, even though it hasn't did anything to help you. Like America is not a helping country it's a terrorist country we're terrorizing other the other parts of the world and it's just it's not a it's not a good country so you shouldn't have to stand up just to represent how quote unquote great america is and um a lot of people got riled up about that and we talked about that every some people actually agreed with it and some people actually um they were confused. They didn't know if they agreed or not. They were kind of bipolar just based on the situation. But I actually support his decisions. And, um, yeah, and that's all I wanted to talk about. And that's uh, that's all for now. Thank you for taking my call. Our young scholar in the Bay Area, there was a question uh, Roz had for you when you shared on Thursday about your student groups in the Bay Area. I just wanted to insert really quick. Uh, I did not include it in the sound clips because this happened uh, less than 24 hours ago. And so I just I had already had my news snippets together for this week. But here in Seattle, Washington, Garfield High School, their football team, the entire team, coaches included, kneeled for the national anthem last night at their football game obviously this got quite a bit of attention and they have a black coaching staff garfield high school is in the central district uh here in seattle washington that is affectionately known as the colored district uh that is one of the areas where they warehoused one of the few areas where they would allow black people to reside even though it now is being greatly as they call it gentrified uh black people are being ejected from that area but the high school still has a pretty high concentration of black students uh, and if you have a good memory dorothy bullet white woman her uh, ancestors enslaved black people in kentucky she went to garfield high school and talked about how she was abused and terrorized by the black students there in the 60s when they uh first began to allow black students to go to school there but at any rate um I think the question Roz wanted to have about those student groups, I think you said this happened, the, you all had this discussion at the Black Student Union. At the Pride Union, I think his question was, was there any dialogue about gay rights issues? Was that coming up in the Pride group, if I'm remembering correctly? Well, no. Um, just based on what I know, the Pride group is not talking about gay rights, but um, it talks about, like, it doesn't talk about gay pride, but it talks about black pride, basically. That's what it's all about. It's, But just based on the difference, Black Student Union is focused on black students, while pride is just for everyone, and they talk about black pride. Grand. Glad to have the uh, clarification. Uh, other folks that are with us who have commentary they would like to share, uh, feel free. Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, hey. How's everything? Uh, yeah, I'm glad that you did play those uh, sequences and those segments and sequence regarding black wealth. You know, particularly, you know, one, the, the lady where she said that this really that this investment really wouldn't be able to compete 
with, you know, larger white institutions. I mean, when people that run Wells Fargo can steal the information of thousands of people and make and make who knows the amount of money to the point where Wells Fargo, the people that run Wells Fargo, can pay one almost two billion dollars and it not affect them. That just shows what black people, these black banks, us in general are up against. And and also I I found rather offensive was how people that were talking about the Forsyth County saying things like how they think land was stolen. You know, in other words, they were doing what quote-unquote anti-racists like to do, saying that other whites were being dishonest. But then he's looking at the evidence and saying that, no, I don't think, you know, I can't, I, you know, I don't, you know, he's like, I think land was stolen from these black people. And then the woman that's agreeing, and then the woman is agreeing with him. So it's like that, that, you know, this is just typical dishonesty. I mean, if a, if people run out of town and if one group of people run out of town and another people are dominant, of course their land was taken. You know, so that dishonesty right there just shows what we're dealing with. Oh, and uh, did, did you hear about the first usage of the Blue Lives Matter statute in Louisiana? No, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, there's a gentleman, criminal named Raul De La Toba. He's a white man. Now, they're gonna people, there are people that are going to say he's Hispanic, he's non-white because of his last name. If you go to, to mugshots.com, his arrest record lists him as white, so that's fine with me. Anyway, he's in New Orleans, and he's a homeless guy in New Orleans, and he bangs on a, he bangs on a restaurant window. And the security guard is called. Security's called the black security guard. He calls black security guard, you know, and and then cops come. While he's while cops come, he refers to female cop as a racial slur. So on top of these, on top of his being on the window, which is a misdemeanor, he's charged under the Blue Lives Matter statute with, with a hate crime. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. He received these charges, and immediately you have the Anti-Defamation League, people that run the Anti-Defamation League, saying this is inappropriate. You know, this isn't what the statute intended. And then a New Orleans police spokesman, Tyler Gamble, he also said, after reviewing the initial facts of the case, it is clear the responding officer incorrectly applied the law relative to a hate crime in this incident. Now, this is basically this this is basically a a police officer undermining his own officers, undermining a law which is supposed to benefit him and other police officers and security guards, basically on the ground of. Well, in my opinion, this is basically being done because this this law was first used to prosecute a white guy who verbally assaulted a black guy and a female cop. You know, it's like you're not supposed to well, you're supposed to use this law to go after black people. Certainly not, not a white guy who verbally assaults a black officer. And people are applauding this police spokesman's decision. You know, they're, they're hoping that the prosecutor drops this. And it just goes back to what I've been saying for nearly two years with this whole war on cops thing. All you're supposed to go after black people. It's a white person. Well, it's, it's not that bad. And here, here's something that's supposed to be designed to help police, and you have a police officer speaking against it simply because the, the guy that the criminal in charge was white. Now, I'm pretty sure someone black called a cop a cracker and this was applied. There wouldn't be an issue. And of course, none of the pro-police people are saying that they're wrong, this should be used, this is what it was intended for. No, 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 all silent. And that's all I have to say. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, First, I would, um, I'm going to attempt to uh, enter in uh, some thoughts on uh, what I believe the, uh, the question that you invited us to, uh, to uh, enter in on about uh, quote unquote, black owned banks, put your money there. Well, uh, when it comes to uh, money, or anything else that we are allowed to accumulate. 
uh, being that we don't have the power to uh, protect uh, those different things uh, and the system of racist white supremacy does have the power to take it away. That's just the reality of it, of it all. And there's certainly a, 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 a large number of examples of, of uh, the racists uh, doing that very, that very thing when they felt that uh, it can uh, be fun to do or it's to their it's to their uh, 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 best interest to do so. Uh, and uh, so that's a reality uh, to it. Uh, if someone would want to do that, I don't see anything wrong with it. I wouldn't tell a person not to do it personally uh, because at, at some given point in time, it would be assisting another non-white black person. But until we deal directly with in, a, in an effective manner by codifying ourselves individually the, and therefore uh, dismantling the system of racist white supremacy, uh, they can always uh, utilize, they meaning white people who practice racism, but always utilize their power against us. Uh, I had an experience uh, yesterday that I thought was interesting, at least to myself it was interesting. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, we had a game Friday. That's why uh, I'm, I'm not able to uh, enter in on the uh, book readings, but I, you know, listen to it on the uh, archives. Uh, and uh, something interesting, you know, before the game, Normally, uh, once the players are sitting down, relaxing, thinking about the game, the coaches go somewhere else, go somewhere also. And this particular point in time, they, uh, uh, it was about uh, maybe seven or eight non-white black males coaches uh, in the physical education office. And uh, something told me to just shut up, be quiet, and just listen, and just listen to what the conversation is about. And the conversation was about race of the white supremacy. So I said to myself, hmm, you know, uh, because normally uh, uh, when the issue is brought up, it's not necessarily me that brings it up, but, but I come from a totally different perspective than anybody else that's on the staff. So I just sat and listened. And what I heard through this, uh, maybe about 45 minutes to an hour discussion was something that we don't have a problem with articulating, which is the symptoms of racism, white supremacy, a knot upside your head, a gunshot wound, uh, getting fired, uh, 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 and you know a whole large gamut of other uh, 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 offenses and or levels of mistreatment individually and collectively. Uh, television programs, uh, uh, 
negative and racist. Don't let your children look at it. That sort of thing. Uh, but as far as the uh, hows, the hows and the whys of racism, what it is and how it works. No, the closest that I listened to, and, and I also would say VGQ, you know, but the, but the closest that, that I've heard to what it is and how it works was, well, as far as a solution, I'll, I'll say that. And what I heard, the, the closest thing I heard to a solution was a suggestion was made, well, if we uh, go into employment and rise ourselves to a level that we are in charge, uh, that uh, this will basically solve the problem. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to process this in my head. Wait a minute. So, okay, racist white man and racist white woman allows you to get a job, allows you to uh, uh, arrange something that's called a business, and they're going to allow you to destroy their global system of racist white supremacy. Hmm. Uh, I can think of two examples uh, to myself. I'm thinking of myself. I can think of two examples. One of them isn't there a non-white black person that's the president of the United States? The problem is still here. And as I mentioned from time to time, the, uh, the appearance of Charles Phillips, the director of, of Dade County Fire Department for less than a year. And uh, he was forced off the job because he refused to fire three friends of mine. Uh, from an incident that took place on September the 12th, 2001. And in turn, the attention was turned on him and they forced him out of employment. You know, so just, just a thought, you know, but I said to myself, well, you know, without my uh, assistance at all, you know, this, the, it was brought up. So that was something good. And, and, uh, you know, stay tuned. I, I would have more to report, uh, guarantee you next week on it. But uh, at this particular, that particular occasion, I just decided not to say anything at all and just to listen. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future I may uh, kind of include uh, some things through and, 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 and to keep down from an argument or anything like that, which it hasn't been. Uh, I would uh, put whatever I have to say in the terms of a question. And that may uh, provide an atmosphere to, en to enlighten or share in a constructive manner with other victims of racism and white supremacy. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, go ahead, guys. I'll, I'll share your commentary, then I'll speak. Go ahead. Oh, I didn't, I didn't have commentary. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you did. Um, first, I wanted to um, say uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to the callers and the listeners. And um, the, first, I wanted to answer your question in regards to uh, black banking and uh, what we felt about um, about the discussion that was had on it uh, in the clips that you were playing. And um, I think that 
banking black, especially when they said that literally in out of all 50 states in this country, there's only 23 black banks across the country. Um, no, just that, just to share uh, the mathematics alone tells me that that would not do anything to uh, make a dent in the system of white supremacy. Um, depending on the the level of understanding of the system of white supremacy of those black people who run those banks, you might uh, run into a situation where, uh, like the, the, the I'm forgetting the, the brother's name, but he from uh, Louisiana, who helped all of those people during Katrina, um, because of his understanding of white supremacy, he was able to help um, help some of those people who were severely mistreated by the banks and um, kind of facilitate helping them uh, uh, save their properties and things like that. So I believe that in that manner, that can be constructive, again, depending on the level of understanding of the people who run those banks in regards to the system of racism and white supremacy. Um, the reason I think, another reason I think that, or the reason I think that it will not work is simply because when they said that uh, black people uh, collectively in this country uh, amass over $1 trillion per year, yet less than 2% of that money stays in the black community, um, to me, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's just unfathomable uh, that we spend that kind of money and less than 2% of that money remains in our uh, communities. And I think what would better what would better serve us as a collective group of people in this country is um, being able to spend our money with black businesses and or, or with people that live within our communities so that that money stays in the community as much as possible. I know in Jewish communities, I've read on multiple occasions that the $1 um, rotates in their community at least 100 times before it leaves their community. Whereas with black people, as soon as we get our paycheck on a Friday, you know, by that following Monday, probably 80 to 90% of it is spent with people who don't live in our communities and people who don't look like us. So yeah, definitely. I don't think that that's going to uh, do anything to make any sort of um, dent or change in the system. I should say, not to use a metaphor, make any sort of uh, systemic change in our experiences under the system of white supremacy. Um, to speak on the clips, I wanted to touch on the uh, clip in regards to the ethnic cleansing in Forsyth, Georgia, regards to the mistreatment of these black people. It made me think of a documentary called Banished, which you can find on YouTube, where they discuss uh, multiple families across the country where the same sort of scenario happened. Um, and it was just one of the most powerful documentaries I ever saw. It also made me think of, in my own family, my father-in-law's father is from America's Georgia. His family's from America's Georgia. They relocated to Jersey when he was a very young child. And that was because um, his father had dealt with such mistreatment from a particular white male down there that he ended up killing the guy. And um, in order to escape retribution, he basically packed up his family and moved here. And from what I was told by um, my father-in-law and other family members, he never uh, spoke about that incident. Once he moved here, it was basically that was, that was a, a non-approachable uh, subject until he passed away. But that was what drove him uh, to leave that area, was practicing uh, excuse me, black self-respect in the form of counter-racist violence. So it kind of brought that memory to me. Um, I found it very interesting that during the clip you played about the white kids that were abusing the um, young black male, I believe he was on the football team, for kneeling and praying during the national anthem. Um, and I found it telling when they said to him, when he came from where, they said that he was in an area of the, um, 
the locker room where they did not know he was there when they were, you know, using the word nigger, like they said, with a, with a strong R, I think they said, or a hard R at the end or whatever it was. Um, but he came from wherever he was to address the situation with them. When they said, one of the children said, this doesn't concern you. Um, and then they said right after that, they stood for the national anthem. Um, I found that telling because they're basically saying, you know, um, us calling you a nigger doesn't really concern you as far as you addressing that situation. But um, being racist is to be American. So they proudly stood up, put their hand on their chest and recited the national anthem. So to me, it was kind of like a subconscious display of how white supremacy works and the fact that um, essentially in their minds, we're not supposed to question their behavior because to be uh, American means to be racist. And to me, in my opinion, to be a black American who's standing for the national anthem, you're basically on a overt, but yet still at the same time, subconscious level, um, you're letting them know that, you know, you're basically invested in the system of white supremacy, that it's okay for them to be racist, and that you will stand for the national anthem just like the racists who are abusing you. So I find that to be interesting. The clip you played on excuse me, the lawyer who was mistreated when going to the Law Society building that he was visiting with the young child. Um, I found that interesting because the, the child, that was the young black male that was with him, I think he really got a great understanding of how racism and white supremacy works. Um, from what I understand, he seemed to be interested in going into the people activity of law because I believe his, parent, his mother was um, a very high-ranking judge in that state. And I think it, gave, it would give a telling understanding of what he could expect to deal with in a system of white supremacy in the area of law, um, if, if he chooses to pursue that as a career. Also, um, th I found it telling, too, that he discussed that other black lawyers who have talked about racism but do not uh, do anything about it when it's addressed to them personally, as far as them being personally mistreated or when others are mistreated. And um, him, I, I wanted to give Mr. Selwyn uh, a big uh, uh, black self-respect, you know, high five just for being able on his own to successfully defend himself once against that mistreatment. And now he's doing it a second time. Hopefully that move that he makes will help to bring other black people into that realm of understanding that unless we do something about it, um, even if nothing happens, just the attempt is uh, something that, is, is, that can create some sort of change based on how many people are touched by that um, effort to replace white supremacy with justice. Um, finally, I wanted to ask about the clip in regards to the good cop, um, that, that whole good cop clip where the, um, the young the person was uh, shot in the head when the other uh, officers arrived on the scene. I wanted to know, was the so-called good cop a black cop, and was the person who was mentally disturbed who ended up getting killed, was he black as well? The quote-unquote good cop was white the victim who was shot and killed was black. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I just found that to be just interesting that uh, the white cop who originally went on the scene did not take the normal approach of just jumping out of a car and shooting him like that. But I found it interesting that he, the white cop ended up getting fired for that, just like the, the news reporter said, um, not practicing, you know, racism essentially and not uh, gunning him down the moment he saw him with a gun in his hand. Um, to me, that, that, that speaks volumes to anyone one who wants to understand that police officers are trained that it is their duty to kill black people, kill black children, kill black men, kill black women, wherever they encounter them and wherever um, they, quote-unquote, feel threatened by them in any 
excuse me, in any capacity, and um, it should give us a lot of insight into what to expect when we deal with these white white cops, black cops, any cops, and the fact that um, even if we um, have contact with them, that it's supposed to be non-combative, that they will escalate that situation just to take our lives in any way, shape, or form, or just severely abuse us and, and, and attempt to destroy us as uh, human beings. So I think that's something we should really look at, because I think that that situation is like they said in the clip, it's a nationwide phenomena, and unless we do something to eradicate the system of white supremacy, and specifically, uh, I think we need to dismantle what they call the police and law enforcement system completely and rebuild it from the bottom up, and I think that is a brilliant sign of what the problem is and how deep and deeply entrenched it is, and what we need to do um, is really attack that as, as much and as fervently as possible. And just I wanted to give respect to uh, Sandra Bland and say rest in peace to her. And I'm really happy about um, the work that, that her mother is doing to try and get nationwide systemic change in the way uh, black people and um, other non-white people are dealt with by the law enforcement community. Thank you, and I'll be mute my line. Sure. Uh, other people that we have not heard from, uh, feel free to chime in. Please do not wait until the last minute. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number again, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks we haven't heard from. Never. Yes, ma'am. Hey, hello to you, Gus, the host, and to all the callers and listeners. Just a, a, just a few little comments. Um, the story about the liquor, Jack, Jack Daniels, I think that was it. I, I just think that, <laughs> you know, they're putting the African-Americans and they're putting, you know, bringing the black person or black people into the story now because the way I feel, and I, I, don't, I haven't done any research, but I just feel that those white people stole those black people's recipe. They had come up with that, you know, that liquor recipe, and they took it, and, uh, you know, they made it, you know what I'm saying, what they did. I mean, because we know historically many black people who have made discoveries and white people took, the, took it, patented, and it's theirs. So that's what I think is happening, because I just don't see white people just bringing up some black people to put them in, or, oh, you know, to, you know, to talk about them. It's like, you know, this is their recipe, and, you know, and they're not going to admit to that. But now, you know, we'll put them in the story. And then uh, what the one guy said, something about he does the tours, like, well, makes like the black person is there, but nobody really knows why he's there or something like that. And when I, I heard the story before, and that was just the first thing that, that just came to my mind, you know, uh, it's kind of like to me the same thing with Kentucky Fried Chicken. I just feel that Colonel Sanders, took some black woman's recipe that probably a woman that worked for his family at one time and, you know, made it into Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's just me. But uh, that's, that's how I feel about that. The um, young man that was killed in Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, this is in Ohio. This is Ohio, a state, an open carry state. This is the third black male that has been killed in this state open carry, John Crawford child, Tamir Rice, and then this child, he was 13, you know, and I, I can't think of his name. And so I'm, I'm just of the conclusion then that this open carry, and I, you know, I'm in Ohio, that this open carry is not meant for black people. I, I, yeah, and, and 
no one can tell me otherwise at this point in time. Um, you know, and like you say, there there is well, according to what we're being told, there is no video or anything. And so I question, I question that he pulled out the speedy gun and uh uh, you know, turned around and, and going to shoot this cop. I, I just questioned that. And I just thought it was rather um for me to me that they come up with a picture of a gun and at the news conference, you know, they hold up this picture. Oh, this is what he had. It's like, yeah, okay, okay. I, I just I just find all that to be suspect. In terms of banking, I can't actually remember the question that you asked, but I, I will say this. I was listening to a videotape of the late Dr. Amos, and in one of his videos or in one of his lectures, he spoke about black banks. Well, he spoke about banks, and then he talked about black banking. And he said, one thing he said, he said, to have black banks, you know, he says, you you really have need to have businesses, too. He said, there's people uh, say with deposit their money into the bank, that money is using to build up businesses. So he was making that connection. And I think that that has to be a lot of what we have to, as black people, start to build businesses. And and once you know you begin to build businesses, you begin to build a community, you can begin to, and, and I'm not saying anything about, you know, running away from racism, which I don't think we can, but still you begin to be able to employ your people. And that that helps for a, 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 a community to grow. So I don't know if I answered your question, but um, I just remember doc, hearing Dr. Wilson say that, and I thought that was uh, um, I thought that was very a very interesting statement because you know Dr. Wilson's been dead. He died in 1995, so these lectures were back then, and to hear him say that then, so and um, you know it is. You know, I mean, banking, banks are very important. It's painful. I, I, I can remember being in church over, well, it's been over four years ago, and a minister, at that time, he was asking us to pray because the bank wanted to to increase the um, the APR, the percentage rate. And and I remember he made this statement. He said, so let's pray, you know, that, and you all know. But he made a statement. He says, he, he says something to the fact that, we deposit like $50,000 a month into your bank, into the bank, and you still want to, um, you know, mess with our percentage rate. And I remember I was sitting in the back of the church, and, you know, and I, I started, you know, to add, add multiply that up, and I was like, well, how much is this church giving a year to this bank? And so we know that churches in our community are giving mega cash to banks and actually we're getting nothing in return. And, and unfortunately, um that's not on the bank's part, too, because since churches don't seem to believe that these communities that they're in, I'm talking about black churches, should have businesses, this is also a part of our fault, too, especially those of us who go to church and take our tithes and offers to the church. And I think that's part of our part, too, that we don't put the demands on these ministers that, look, we're giving you all this money, you know, and, um, you know, what good is it to have a big mega church and you got a run-down neighborhood? That's his big mega church that's in, and so I do think that's that's a, a big part of our problem. As far as foresight, foresight Georgia, I saw I think it was a PBS special, and I do think it was foresight, and and it was something about the people were going back. This was about burying people. I think they were in a cemetery, 
And it was just really sad. And basically, I really saw this little white lady. She was like, we didn't steal any property. They gave us that property. They just left it. They left that property. I mean, it, it, I want to say it was unbelievable to hear, you know, her say that. But I know it's not. But even still, it's something about me and my personality. I know how these people are. But even, I guess, for me to hear them say the things that they say, it's almost just startling in just how you can open your mouth and just outwardly lie like it's nothing. Don't don't flinch, don't twitch or anything. Just say it. And so I, I saw, like I say, uh, um, a PBS special on that. And it was just really, it's, I mean, it's just, and like you say, they're just land grabs and think the women into some of my ethnic cleansing. And it's just, it's just theft. It's just outright theft. And, um, I, I just don't know what we we could we could do about that. I mean, I, I, mean, I just don't know. Um, so I'll mute my line. Thank you. For sure, for sure. Other people that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, uh, your line should be open. Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, this is Ken Steele from Chicago. And um, I wanted to uh, report on some very peculiar or noteworthy um, happenings going on surrounding, um, I'm going to say, the work of Neely Fuller. Um, Recently, a very popular um, Internet personality was visited visited by... um, uh, what he reports to be the FBI, and uh, they questioned him about his use of the term um, maximum emergency compensatory action. And I distinctly remember when this personality um, initially used this um, in refer- erroneously uh, in reference to the actions of Micah, Eric John- uh, Micah uh, Xavier Johnson, and, um, yeah, I, I, at that time when he was saying um, these, making these statements, uh, to me it became very apparent that um, he would have to um, answer um, for his use of this phrase. And they, and according to him, they asked him to define the term and to say what he meant. And uh, from what I could tell, from his own reporting, he was unable to um, give an accurate definition when questioned on the spot. And I just like to remind listeners, viewers, and other victims of uh, listeners and other victims of white supremacy that um, this section of the book that makes mention of this uh, maximum emergency compensatory action is the longest section of the book, and I don't recommend speaking about it um, without it in front of you so that you can read exactly what it says. Because when you start um, going down the road of speaking um, incorrectly or not being very careful with your words, you can open yourself up to a lot of trouble as this um, personality is finding out. Um, Also, I'd like to make mention that a few months ago, I, I believe on this broadcast, I mentioned that um, this Internet personality could be 
um, being used um, by white supremacists um, against him. And I'd like uh, victims of white supremacy to take note um, that there are other victims of white supremacy that follow a similar trajectory in terms of being given um, an open uh, an open um, medium to communicate and spread their messages uh, on uh, basic cable and, uh, and um, on cable news. And those names are um, Anwar Al. Aloaki. He was a U.S. citizen born in California. He was a um, a lecturer and a professor, and he was a YouTube personality. And he was eventually killed um, in Yemen um, by a drone strike. And then there's another personality, Anham Chaudhry. Um, he's a U.K. citizen, and he was recently convicted for um, espousing views that they purport to support the Islamic State. Um, what's notable about him is that he was a um, television personality, and he was given um, a wide platform on Fox News, on uh, CNN, and he would routinely make um, very bombastic statements and statements that were inflammatory to white supremacists, um, and he was eventually um, jailed for these statements. So uh, anybody that's out here um, trying to do counter-racist work, um, you have to be very, very careful with the words that you're using to convey the messages that you are um, trying to get across. And I'd like to make mention that on the broadcast that um, this Internet personality made mention of all of this uh, activity going around his home, um, he did make mention of uh, the host of this podcast, um, uh, Gus. He did make mention of your name. Um, so that's something to be noted. Um, there is also a number of um, very peculiar incidences surrounding um, the posting of Neely Fuller's broadcasts um, on YouTube. I believe the user um, Victor of RWS is under uh, what appears to be um, an attack uh, questioning the copyright or whatever um, regarding um, his posting of these broadcasts. And I'd like to make mention that many of us, um, myself especially, um, use that medium that YouTube page to hear um, some of uh, Neely Fuller's broadcasts after they're being posted. And this user has split up um, the broadcast and easy to use lessons that can be easily in that are indexed and easily searchable um, by topic. So uh, the attempt to take down this page to me seems to be um, an act of white supremacy. I suspect that white supremacists are the ones that are um, uh, leading the charge to um, get this uh, page taken down. I, I know that um, the owner of the page is in contact with Neely Fuller, but that was just something that was very, very um, peculiar to me. Also, I'd like to mention that the um, alleged FBI agents that did approach this um, person, uh, this internet personality, 
they were on code. Um, they were, uh, apparently they were on code. They were being very courteous. They were being very polite and they stuck to asking questions and the victim of white supremacy that, uh, they were questioning. Um, I'd like to make note that, um, it's frequent that this person is not on code is not being precise with their words is frequently breaking, um, uh, the code to not name call. And I suspect that this to be very free and loose with um, his speech may have had a role in um, may have had a role in um, making it so that he would say something to uh, get himself into trouble. So again, um, stick with the code. Um, buy the book. Uh, it's at producejustice.com. Study what it actually says about what is in there and also study the world around you and um, be very, very mindful of what these white supremacists are doing to uh, non-white victims of white supremacy abroad so that we can know what we have in store for us here at home. And uh, I guess that's what I will say for now. I'm going to mute my line. Appreciate that. Very interesting observations. Uh, before we nab karma and anybody else who has not shared, just um, the first portion about a victim of racism, if they got in trouble or got uh, unwanted attention from uh, white supremacist, white supremacist enforcement agents, uh, with the whole maximum emergency concept, I talked about that when those shootings were taking place in july in dallas texas and baton rouge louisiana i said i was seeing people on my facebook page uh who were making comments uh that were massively incorrect and as i stated back then a couple months ago could lead to that very sort of thing uh enforcement officials visiting you and saying that you are promoting uh terrorist activity or encouraging terrorist activity encouraging celebrating uh, violence, they'll probably say terrorism uh, against enforcement officials. I saw that, and these individuals were making these posts using Mr. Fuller's concept and saying, uh, you know, this was so early. I mean, it was so much incorrect about this when I was seeing it. They were posting this within minutes of the shooting happened in Louisiana. So they didn't have information. Nobody had information because it had just happened uh, within 60 minutes uh, of the shooting. So there was very little detail about who had done the shooting, who was shot. It was just, you know, officers shot in Louisiana. And people were saying, hey, if it's a black person, you know, maximum emergency in full effect. And I said immediately that is massively incorrect on so many levels. You have no idea what's taking place here because I don't and nobody else does either. Uh, at this point, they have not reported very much information. Uh, second, Mr. Fuller has that stated explicitly in the book. You're not supposed to be doing that sort of thing. You're not supposed to be talking uh, about maximum emergency, certainly not on Facebook or what have you, talking and gloating and celebrating. One of the principal points being that if someone does engage in an act of maximum emergency, the only person who would know in earnest is the victim who chooses to engage in maximum emergency. You're not supposed to talk about it to anybody else. If you're a victim, you're not supposed to leave any letters or videos or anything like that. So nobody would actually know if it's happened. So that's not supposed to be happening at all, much less getting on social media. So 
I tried to, to remind folks about that the whole time. Uh, I was seeing people posting, uh, having Micah, Xavier Johnson, uh, Gavin Long, having their photos up uh, as their avatar on social media sites and what have you, and saying, I suspect that exact type of thing would happen. Uh, enforcement officers, local officers, FBI agents, whatever it is, uh, come in to visit you and might even say, hey, uh, that is a criminal act, and you know, you're going to have to come with us. I'm not surprised at all. If anything, take it seriously. This is nothing to joke about. Uh, particularly anything that involves the loss of life. It is nothing to joke about. It's nothing to be uh, emotional. This is not a game. This is war. I've stated this for years. There are so many black people who have died just talking about racism, and they weren't even saying go out and kill this person or anything about violence. They were just talking, sharing their views about racism, and that was enough for them to warrant death. Keep that in mind at all times, and anything that you are saying, you should think, is this what I would want to say if I know there's a microphone in front of my face and this is going to, whatever I say, is going to be repeated around the world for the next five years. It's going to be translated into about 100 different languages. It's going to be available for download, streaming. It's going to be on YouTube, any other sites you can think of. It's going to be available for at least the next five years. Anybody who wants to hear what I said, it'll be right there. Am I still willing to say this? I want to be on record. That's the way you should think. Every time you open up your mouth to speak about racism, that way we will be serious. We'll be in the business of being codified whenever we open up our mouth to speak about racism, white supremacy, counter-racism. I think that's the way that we should think. That's the way that we should behave. That's the way we should function at all times because there's a lot of non-white people who end up uh, have, creating more problems when they go to speak about racism, white supremacy. And that can happen anyway, even if you are being codified and doing what you're supposed to do. But you certainly can increase the problems and difficulties that you experience if you are not being codified, not using the most accurate terms, being emotional, that sort of thing. And also, just last comment before I bring karma, we certainly do not want to be incorrectly attributing things to other victims of racism. That's something that I take also very seriously. I do not want to be misquoted. I do not want people attributing statements or something that I wrote incorrectly, saying that I stated something that I did not say or saying I wrote something that I didn't say, or if I wrote it, they've mangled it, so they've changed it. It's not exactly the way that I articulated it. That's something that we should also take very seriously. Let's not be in the business of being casual and just real uh, lax in articulating or attributing comments statements to another non-white person when it deals with racism white supremacy that is very serious let's make sure we get that correct anytime you're referencing another non-white person's views on racism white supremacy i will stop there karma karma were you gonna comment i'll get the uh other person i'll get you i just want to make sure we get karma because she hasn't shared it all as well karma were you gonna comment Are you with us, Carmen? We're not hearing you. I don't know if you can share. Uh, Gus? Yes, sir, Ken. I can hear you. I just want to make sure I nab uh, Karma really quick, and then I'll double back and make sure we get you as well, sir. Uh, Karma, are you going to comment, or are you just listening? If, if you're just listening, then we can go ahead and get Ken right now. Uh, are you just listening, Karma, or did you have some commentary you wanted to get in as well?
Okay. Your line was open. Uh, I did hear at yeah. least background noise, but not hearing anything now. Uh, were you going to finish your comment up before we uh, get our other folks, Ken? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make mention that um, on last week's broadcast of the compensatory concept, um, incidentally, Neely Fuller did mention uh, one time when he, uh, a specific situation where he was told that a person in a meeting that he was in um, was someone from the Justice Department. Um, this person was called an agent or whatever, and he purportedly uh, claimed to walk up to this uh, agent of the Justice Department and proceeded to have a full conversation with this person. So, uh, I, you know, to me, that story that he told kind of illustrates that if you are going by the code and if you are, you know, seeking to produce justice and if you are speaking um, in a correct manner, there shouldn't be too much trouble that you run into when you are um, dealing with um, enforcement officers as long as they are not um, race soldiers. So that's just a story that he also mentioned. And then also, just to kind of um, piggyback on what I said earlier, um, Neely Fuller in 2014, I believe, made mention that the Middle East uh, is a laboratory for white supremacists to test out their new toys and different techniques that they have for um, harming non-white people. And I did mention Anham Chaudhry and uh, Anwar Alawaki um, simply because these are two victims of white supremacy that are from uh, that area of the world where they are doing that experimentation. And what happens to them and what's being done to them, from my observation, is being done to us. Uh, if you recall, Micah Xavier Johnson himself was taken out by a drone. Um, and I'm sure that the technique that they used to take him out was originally explored in the Middle East. So that's why I say um, if you want to see what they have in store for victims of white supremacy here, uh, look no further than what they are doing to, white supremacy, uh, to victims of white supremacy abroad. Uh, and I'll move my line. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, other folks, people that we have not heard from at all, again, please do not wait until the last minute. If you have commentary, get your hand up now. Uh, we have a little more than 30 minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, folks we have not heard from have commentary. Can I be here? Uh, yes, sir. All right. Um, I was uh, wanted to comment on the uh, on the black banks. Uh, 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 a woman who uh, who was uh, commenting earlier was uh, mentioning about you know how. Um, we need to uh, we need to follow up with uh, you know supporting these black banks. I mean, I I do agree that the strategy of black banks uh, is viable, but at the same time, we have to hold them accountable for giving resources to the community. 
uh, you know, as far as, you know, giving out loans to the, the community and, and also business loans, because uh, she also mentioned that, you know, businesses also need to be built from these banks. So, uh, you know, that, that, that it's a follow-up. You know, just, just mindlessly giving your money to, you know, to a bank is not going to empower a community. But, you know, if the bank is uh, at the same time doing something with the money to empower the community, that's a first step. So, uh, I, I, you know, I, I do agree with strategy, but the thing is, is that we have to follow up with it and make sure that, the, you know, we're, we're accounting for the black banks giving these resources that, you know, other banks and other communities do. And also, too, with the, uh, with the Sandra Bland uh, case, I'm, uh, I'm very conflicted with that because, you know, even though the, the family deserves all the money that, you know, that they can get and possibly more, uh, I, I just feel like, you know, I, I just feel conflicted with that because, you know, if, if we're truly talking, if we're truly uh, want, uh, there's some people who want to fight, you know, the police terrorism through the courts. I personally, you know, don't think that that's a, a viable uh, solution. But at the same time, if you're going to do it through the courts, stop taking these settlements and file a class action lawsuit. Uh, I, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna try to battle them through the courts, then, then do it where it hurts. Because, you know, I, I'm not a trained lawyer, I worked around lawyers, but I know that class action lawsuits hurts more than settlements. Because $1.9 million is really nothing to, you know, a, a city to give to somebody. I mean, you know, that, 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 in some cities, and especially if you, you're looking at, you know, cities in Texas, that's, that's typically chump change. And I think a lot of it, uh, I think there are some people, well, I don't think, I know there are some people uh, within, uh, within the legal system who are, you know, who are, uh, who are working with the uh, system of racism, white supremacy, uh, to undermine the fight in the legal system uh, against police terrorism. It is no coincidence that an attorney like Benjamin Crump is representing the families of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, uh, Martin Lee Anderson, Tamir Rice's family, Kendrick Johnson's family. It is no coincidence this guy is 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 the is the attorney representing all these families who's where the cops are getting off so you you have to also look at this as well so you know i i mean like i said i i'm, I'm conflicted with 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 the family um uh getting the settlement but you know we have to stop taking the hush money you know i i i, I guess this is up to the family of, of the victims of, of, of police terrorism but they have to come to an agreement that if they're going to do this, do it right. You know, you know, file the class action lawsuit uh, against, you know, against police terrorism. Um, and that's all I got to say, and I'll mute my line. Hmm. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I think hush money would be a metaphor. Um, one thing I did want to get in the term uh, community, uh, I know Dick Gregory has emphasized this, Mr. Fuller has emphasized this, I do as well, very important, just fundamentals in terms of what we mean when you say community. Uh, it is my view, just 
following logic, you cannot have a quote-unquote community if you are subject to the system of white supremacy. Uh, The only community would be the white race. There is a white community, everybody else, you just have uh, groups of victims. Uh, And I think that's uh, very important uh, in terms of just understanding and being able to follow logic when we make assessments uh, about things. Uh, The one thing I did want to say about black businesses, uh, that is one, and even in the archives, Mr. Fuller talked about his uh, conversation, his exchange with the official from the Justice Department uh, on this program uh, back, I think it's episode number five, Uh, you would have to go way back, Uh, I think that would be 2009, but he talked about that exchange and being told not to go talk to the guy, and then what they talked about all of that. That's, I believe, episode five. Anywho, um, I spoke with Mr. Fuller more recently, and we were talking about that very thing, black businesses. And he said in Washington, D.C., there was a black-owned grocery store. You have a substantial population of black people in the Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. area, even though it is dwindling. Uh, that right there, black community, non-existent. Anyway, but he said it was a black-owned grocery store. It was great. Fresh produce, uh, Sparkling clean, uh, just the best that you would want in terms of uh, quality shopping experience. And he said that it lasted for not even five years. Uh, He said it did not even last long enough. He said most people don't even remember it, mega foods. Uh, He said they employed black people, uh, black children, worked there after school and during the summer. Uh, He said it was not uh, sustainable uh, because the black people there did not have lots of money, so they could not go in and spend a lot. Uh, You had black people there who were struggling, and so some of them were going in and stealing, and it ended up just not being viable. And he said that's what we have to think about in terms of a system of white supremacy. He emphasized he's not telling anyone not to go into business, but what type of business are you going to go into and who's going to support your business? Uh, He mentioned the black bookstore. Same thing. Black bookstore is still in operation They sell Mr. Fuller's book. He's gone there to do speaking engagements, but he said they are struggling uh, to be in business. Black people are not interested in going there to buy a book. And are you going to be able to compete with Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, the mega white corporations in a system of white supremacy? Generally, the answer has been no. Uh, We have not. That's what I mean about, you know, just being honest about the logistics. Uh, Even when people say buying while black, it was a new segment I played just this month uh, where it was a black female. She was trying to do that, and she was saying she was running into problems uh, because there just weren't enough black businesses to support the things that she needed to purchase. Uh, She was having to buy things that were not close. It just seemed like it was very difficult to put into practical uh, formulation uh, of buying from black businesses, and all of that is evidence of the overwhelming white power system dynamic that we live under and I just don't a lot of these things are just not going to be solved as long as the system of white supremacy exists again I am not an economist I am not a financial wizard Uh, I'm just making an assessment based off my understanding of racism white supremacy however I think it is telling that a lot of these uh, problems comments suggestions that people have had They have been saying this for a long time, much longer than I've been alive on this planet in terms of we need to buy black and all of that. I would almost say, man, this is sounding a bit like rhetoric uh, and the system of white supremacy because we've been saying this for a long time. And if we haven't figured out how to do this under the system of white supremacy, that might be saying that, oh, okay, some of this is just not logical. Some of these things are just not going to work well under the system of white supremacy. Again, I could be in error. 
uh, folks that we have not heard from at all, anyone we have not heard from at all, you should speak now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, greetings to Augusta hosts, the listeners and callers. I had a quick question. Was I, Like I heard something about the uh, NAACP because I, I had looked up a an article. I don't know if it was the same one that was played on the audio segment. It was it was the one I think it was about like a uh, a suspected white supremacist at a coal store, and he it, I don't know if he was an employee, but he might have just been like a random person. He grabbed I guess like the megaphone or whatever the intercom to uh, make an announcement, and it said something about uh, everybody in Coles. I just want to announce that we're having a uh, buy one, buy one nigger, get another nigger free, or something like that. And the guy they had on the news report was saying that this happened, like, multiple times. And the uh, the manager, the uh, white female manager, like, stood around and heard it and didn't really do anything. So he went up to her. And asked her, like, hey, you know, are you going to, you know, like, uh, issue a formal apology with our news media or something? And she was like, no. She, <laughs> she said no, basically. And they like, okay. Sorry about that. I think we had somebody was on speakerphone, okay. I think. Oh, okay. Um, and, and, yeah, like the reporter, she had said that they caught up with the guy who made the comment, and he just basically said, "Oh yeah, um, yeah, I I had got the I seen out the opportunity to grab the megaphone, and uh, you know something really foolish came out. He, you know, he didn't say <laughs> he didn't say racially. He said foolish. So uh, I mean, he sounded very like relaxed. You know." Like, they just played his voice back. They didn't put the camera on him. So he said, uh, you know, this is a real opportunity for for me to grow. And, uh, you know, this is a, a reality check or something. And uh, the the next article I have wrote, I, have, I mean, I had read was, it was this guy, I guess, used to be on Mad TV named Ari Spears. He was, he was, uh, on an interview where he mentioned his, I guess, a, a co-worker or another star that was on that show, Mad TV, she made a comment about the uh, the black female, Deborah Wilson, who was in a, a relationship with, a, with one of the white guys on the show. And I guess the, from what it says, the joke was, uh, oh, my God, Pat. I've got all this black dirt under my under my fingernails, like I was raped by and quote unquote N word, and I've got the evidence to prove it. So, you know that that is like major right there. So, uh, you know, I didn't know like that kind of stuff was going on. That's on the show where they did like these skits. So, I think her name is Alex Bernstein or something like that. If anybody's heard of that person. So yeah, that that is a very uh, you know very racist, uh, disgusting joke, 
and the last the last story was the the young kids over there in Texas. I think they did. They also took a kneel to the anthem, the national anthem. And what was interesting was that they said, I think it was the news media that called the Beaumont Police Department because I think that's where it was at in Beaumont. And they said they contacted the police department and the FBI about, hey, you know, what are y'all going to do? an investigation on these coaches and players like young young children being threatened and they said they didn't receive any you know, they didn't receive a response from any of the uh agencies. So I wasn't surprised at that and I, I guess they haven't made any updates to it. And uh that's that's all I have for now. Thank you. Mm. Fascinating. Wow. Wow immediate response for black people and whatever they're posting on social media, but black children being threatened at school, man, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. Exactly. <laughs> um, did, uh, did we miss anybody, anybody who had a hand up that we have not heard from at all? Can I be heard? Doug? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, on the banking, uh, investing in black banks, um, I'm, uh, somewhat indifferent at this point with respect to investing in black banks. Um, I'm, uh, I'm more interested in not spending uh, as a deterrent in terms of economics against the system that oppresses us. It's more using our money more effectively rather than the banking uh, black aspect so that when we try to not spend money around the holidays and supporting the system in that way, I think that's a bit more effective from what I've seen um, so far. Um, I think also that with respect to black Um, endeavors economically that it's more important for me at this time to think in terms of a black family trying to pull their resources together and make economic strides in that way. Um, I know family is not always um, the perfect uh, nucleus, as well because of the differences that we can have. But I'm saying even a deeper layer would be to try to select a partner um, that you think you can work with in terms of the strides you want to try to affect and, you, you know, to first try to pick correctly and then try to train, if you're going to have offspring, train them. So what I'm really getting at is the thinking, at the thinking level and how we carry out our our interests in terms of how we want to think, then I think that's a better way to approach the system in terms of how we use our money. And let that thinking deter the oppression to the best of our ability. Um, Having said that, I think that 
we don't have to do either or. We can try to do both of those things. Um, I think also that the system controls the banking industry, whether or not we define it as or describe it as black or if we describe it as any other shade, uh, that the system is controlled by the racist white supremacist terrorist. Um, the story about the blood at the root uh, on the Fresh Air report, uh, the racist suspect who, who wrote the book about the cleansing of the black people, if you will, uh, genociding the black people out of town, I mean, the author talked about uh, the, having heard about the incident, uh, the genociding of black people from Forsyth, from his bus, uh, uh, his bus uh, school classmates on the bus. I think oftentimes white people, they're jealous uh, when we, they see us making strides and we're talking about banking and trying to go down that road again. They often step up their attack and uh, their adversarial uh, racist tendencies toward us when we do try to make strides. So this is just another aspect, another way that they do it. I mean, I'm so exhausted, practically fainting from exhaustion about how the story just repeats itself over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. A black male attacked a white Mm -hmm. female, and that causes... Uh, a whole town to be of black people to be destroyed. So mm-hmm. I was fascinated again, once again, that uh, this story just repeats itself over and over again, and um, that the black that the uh, racist suspect who wrote the book likely to profit greatly from it. Uh, that Natasha uh, gave him quote unquote permission, so to speak, to write about the terrorism. I'll leave it at that for now. We're getting close to the end, but uh, those are my comments for now. Great. Definitely co-sign on the being more uh, thrifty about the way that we spend under these conditions of white terrorism. I certainly agree. I think that would be impactful as well. If black people stopped purchasing uh, you know, expensive sneakers and lots of other things like that, as Dr. Cambon has advised, we stopped going to the movies, I think that would have a massive Impact, And I don't think, because I've heard quite a few mainstream media outlets talking about the bank black, I don't think that you would have white people in mainstream outlets saying, wow, black people are not buying, they're not going to the movies, they're canceling their cable subscriptions, they're not doing Netflix, like they're really being uh, miserly uh, with their spending. I do not think that they would be encouraging that and playing that up. I think that would be a much bigger uh, problem for racist man, racist woman racist child uh with that foresight segment as well i thought it was very important that he said he heard about this from white children white people are not ignorant about racism in this case it seems even white urchins knew about the racist terrorist antics of their grandpappies and grandmothers and aunts and uncles from 30 40 50 years ago they were very informed it seemed about what happened and i also thought it was important he said in that clip that when you go to the archives and you try to get some of the newsreels from when this happened uh 1912 it's gone where it seems that there has been deliberate white supremacist effort to conceal 
what they have done. That also seems to be standard operating procedure. Did we miss anyone? Anyone that we haven't heard from at all? Anyone we have not heard from at all? We got everybody. Grand. Uh, folks have anything else that they would like to uh, comment on before we wrap up? We have about 15 minutes left. Barbara? Yes, ma'am. I just have one one statement. Um, just like the young lady just said before, she said how it's just like the same story over and over. Black men race white women, you know, and therefore, you know, now you're going to try and go through the face of their and now they're all black people, you know, based on something that chances are isn't true. Some of the other stuff that's going on today with police officers, and I think we have we need to really realize what's going on. I don't know if anybody remembers, but this is, this is um, we are September. Uh, I don't know if it was back in June, maybe early part of July. The Roberts Court, the Supreme Court, handed down a decision which basically gutted the Fourth Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment is it was the amendment. Uh, about unlawful searches and seizures. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the case involved a white man who he come out of a house, I guess the house, he comes out the house, the police stops him and um, basically begins to, like, question him. And what did they do? They asked for his license, ran his license. He was, he was arrested on something. They searched the car. They found, I think, some marijuana or something. And so, you know, the guy was in jail. And um, the case somehow made it all the way to the Supreme Court. So the assumption that I, I guess he was convicted, you know, in the lower court, courts, then the court, then it was appealed. And whatever, I guess the appeal, uh, the appeal, whatever happened in the appellate court, but the case got to the Supreme Court. And basically, the Roberts Court, um, you know, basically stood by, I guess, the lower court, just like, yeah, the conviction stands. And Justice Sotomayor, she wrote the decent, the dissent for the case. And she spoke about it. She pretty much said that, that they have gutted, you know, it's gutted. And she was even speaking about how this plays out for brown and black people. You know, she's Latino and black people. And basically pretty much was like saying, you know, you could be walking down the street. And if a police asks you uh, for your license, you really have to produce that license and um, um, do as they say. You know, and her thing was, you know, you could be walking down the street, minding your business, police stops you. Run your license through, and let's just say you got a warrant. Now you 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 will be arrested, and you know taken to jail. So I just want to put that out there because I really think we need to understand what we are looking at. You know, in part, and this is there is basically there is no more Fourth Amendment, and so you know what what we see going on with the police and and black people, and I always. Said I, I sometimes I've been talking on Facebook, but I said on Facebook, what you're looking at, this is not just random things. Like people tell, oh, we need even the Young Turks, the clip you say with the Young Turks about the case about the police officer that that was going to try to solve this issue with that general without killing him. The other police officer pulled up, killed the man, and now that police officer was fired. And the Young Turks said, oh, they need to be more training. This is not about training. It's my understanding that some police departments are being sent to Israel 
over there with those Hitlerian type actions that's going on and being sent to Israel and trained. So this isn't about training. This is about policy, written and or unwritten. And I just wanted to say that, that we just definitely need to realize that because I read things. People say, they don't have a right to do this. But actually, today they do have a right to do that because we have no more Fourth Amendment rights. So I just wanted to say that and just put that out there. Anyway, thank you. I'll read myself. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, anyone else have other comments they want to make sure uh, they get in? We have about 10 minutes left. Uh, yes, I wanted to uh, just chime in with something that I noticed yesterday um, while I was at work. Um, I guess this might fall into workplace racism or at least the workplace observation, but I was um, sitting at my desk and I was basically minding my business doing my work and there was another uh so-called Latino uh, female that works on the job that came very close to my desk, but she was talking to um, the nurse that's on my team. And the nurse that's on my team was actually training uh, two new female racist suspects. I think they're all racist, but I'll just say that uh, just to be codified, racist suspect females, um, training them. They were two nurses that just just started my job earlier this week. And there was one who just had a very, um, I would just say a racist aura, just just everything about it. She was just an ugly, brunette-haired brute. And um, I didn't say anything to her because I just, I don't speak to them anyway, but I really just did not like her at all. Just her, her vibe, her aura, just everything about it was just nauseating to me. So I really didn't say anything to her. So as the... Um, Latino female comes over to ask the, the nurse a question. I noticed, and the, the female didn't notice this. I just, being observant, just watching as she was talking to the nurse, and she was just fully engrossed in the conversation with the nurse. She was not paying attention to what was going on around her. And that same nurse that I was uh, speaking of that just, I, that just really, I did not like her. Um, I noticed she kept staring at her. And there's a, a look that white people get when there's a form of, whether it's a form of jealousy or where they're trying to, um, I guess it looks like in my mind, in my mind, <clears throat> excuse me, just looking at her body language and her expression, it was almost like she was picking her apart as to her body type, um, her color. Um, and the way she looked at it, there was a kind of undercurrent, uh, jealousy that was there that's that's the only way i could look at it because she seemed to be jealous but it was very uh undercurrent in the way in which it was not overtly um perceptible but as i was watching her body language and how she looked at her up and down and how she was just looking at all of her i guess you would say her um her genitalia she was like looking at her breasts looking at her backside looking at her hips as she's talking to the other nurse and she's not noticing this at all and i sat there and i was like wow this this sort of uh really, again, I always talk about paying attention to how white people function. And um, these are the kind of things that we have to be alert to because even the smallest gestures, and that's why I study body language uh, quite regularly, because I think it gives a lot of insight. And I believe uh, Dr. Kamal, Kamal Kamban has talked about that as well, how he started to learn um, quite a bit about white psychopathology just by studying body language. And um, he had given a, a, a particular instance where he had seen, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the details, but where he had seen how a white person was looking at him in, in, uh, in a situation, I believe it might have been at a job, 
And um, he talked about because of his study of body language that he um, understood that this white person really wanted to do some sort of harm to him. Um, and with this, this female that was really just completely aloof and really was not aware of what was happening as far as, um, like I said, she was so engrossed in her conversation with the nurse, she wasn't really um, seeing anything else as far as seeing what this woman was doing, who was literally like two or three feet away from her sitting down um, while she was being trained. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, too, was um, day before yesterday, I was actually on the train, and I saw this uh, white man. He had a, a Budweiser plastic cup, and he pulled out this, like, hard liquor <laughs> right on the train, poured it in the cup, and was drinking it and um, all the way home, um, on my way home. And um, actually, when he opened it, the that alcohol smell kind of enveloped the whole area. And I, I keep saying this, like, when we see all of these different videos and we hear clips that Gus might play, where white people are overtly white supremacists and sometimes violent or are potentially violent with black people in public settings, we really don't know what they're on. We don't know what they've been drinking. We don't know what they've been sniffing. We don't know what they've been shooting up or what they've been smoking. And the more I travel to and from New York City to work, the more I really start to understand that we have to watch them because we don't know what they're on when they come to this sort of um, behavior where we're not expecting it, and yet a white person might do something overtly white supremacist, and we might be unprepared for that. So I just wanted to say, be prepared at all times. These people drink, I've seen them drink as early as, you know, six in the morning, and as late as, you know, as soon as I get on the train from work. So just be careful and be aware of the white people that are around you, what they're doing, and how they might be paying attention to you, so that that way um, you can be more prepared to um, make a proper decision to protect yourself and those you care about if you're in a public setting and you happen to have an encounter with a white supremacist. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. For sure, for sure, very important. Folks had anything uh, else they wanted to get in, you should get it in now. We have about three minutes. Um, the uh, exchange, just going to make sure I got that in as well. Michael Rappaport, uh, people might have seen him, uh, suspected racist. He had the conflict with Spike Lee a few years back about quote-unquote gentrification. Uh, I played the segment where he was talking about dislike, alleged black people disliking Stephen Curry because he's like complexion amongst other things. Uh, he was in higher learning. He was the racist sniper who killed Tyra Banks. Uh, he was in Spike Lee's film bamboozled. Uh, he was, uh, Thomas Dunwitty was his character. Uh, he last week was upset, uh, along with a lot of other whites about Colin Kaepernick, not, uh, standing for the pledged national anthem. And so he gave his commentary saying that it was disrespectful to the first responders at 9-11 because it was the 15th anniversary and everything. The Root, the online uh, site, they publish content related to black people. I think it's a subsidiary of the Washington Post. They did a piece, they published a piece where the author was basically saying that uh, Michael Rappaport and some of the other whites who were saying this, that this was another form of racism, that black people do not get to take a holiday from racism, white supremacy. So it is unreasonable and racist to say that black people should stop any form of protesting about white supremacy, racism for the 9-11 holiday. Mr. Rappaport, he went online and 
uh, blasted the roots and black people in general, in my opinion, and just made a lot of tacky and racist comments uh, about them, the website, the people that posted. As I said, black people in general, he retweeted a tweet uh, from someone else, reposted it, uh, where they called the writers at the root uh, a bunch of coons. And so I reposted that tweet and I said that this is uh, Michael Rappaport showing his appreciation for black people, basically, by posting this sort of content. Uh, and so he responded. I tagged him in the post so he could see it. He responded and said that, you know, I, hey, I'm not scared. I'm willing to come on any program anytime, any day. I said, no problem. Wednesday, September 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and he said, well, that's too far down the road. People have moved on. People won't be talking about this. Obviously, that is not true because people are still talking about the national anthem thing. It's been almost a month now, but whatever. Uh, so I said, well, hey, let's do uh, this past uh, Wednesday. Uh, that was the 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, he writes back within an hour and he says, well, how about uh, 8 p.m. Eastern is 5 p.m. Pacific. I'm on the West Coast. He says, uh, how about 4.40 uh, p.m. Pacific time? And I'm like, that's 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, what, what is the significance? Is it that, uh, is it that substantial, uh, that you need that 20 minutes that you can't just, uh, dial in at our regular program time, which is 5 PM Pacific, 8 PM Eastern. This is what I write him back. I ask that question. He doesn't respond at all. This is on Wednesday. We've been, uh, exchanging, uh, roughly within an hour or less within each exchange. He doesn't respond at all. So the next day, which is Wednesday, all of this is taking place on Tuesday. The next day is Wednesday. At like 4 o'clock, sometime between like 4 and 4.30, then he responds and says, oh, okay, yeah, are we doing the program? And I'm like, you didn't respond. I didn't hear anything. Like, you didn't, you didn't write back to confirm. You didn't say anything about 4.40, 5 p.m., nothing. Like, just super tacky, in my view, racist, deliberately racist behavior. I wouldn't do that for anybody. Even if we were going to meet for coffee, I would not uh, wait until like 10, 15 minutes before we're supposed to meet and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do the coffee thing. I mean, come on. Uh, so I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's no notice uh, at all. You didn't even respond. Uh, what about Sunday? And same thing, he doesn't respond. Uh, typical tacky uh, racist behavior. I was looking forward to getting him on the program, even though some people said they uh, were not sure it would be constructive, but I certainly was going to uh, engage him in hearing what he had to say about this and even some of the other things that he's commented on over the years because we have brought Mr. Rappaport up on the program uh, quite a few times over the years in some of the, the comments that he has made. Uh, with that, we did our three hours. I'm not doing the, the last-minute thing because I, I checked in repeatedly with folks to see if they had any comments they wanted to get in. Uh, and we'll be here tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's our Global Sunday Talk on white supremacy racism it seems there was some sort of uh, explosion in new york uh we'll have time to talk about that tomorrow i am sure since everyone in the world pays attention to what is happening in nyc uh but we will also have uh, our listeners uh from different parts of the world tuning in tomorrow would be good to hear uh their views on what's been going down the past month or so that is the early broadcast 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, and then on Monday we'll have Dr. Tommy Curry with us. Uh, once again, always good to hear his views. That'll be normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, and then on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, uh, there was an article in the New York Times this week about a renewed effort to attack menthol cigarettes uh, and how the tobacco industry has deliberately targeted black people in this part of the world with menthol cigarettes. Uh, and how that was in of itself, and in my view, chemical and biological warfare, because the research shows menthol cigarettes, they are more difficult to quit, and they do a lot of damage. I think they might even do more damage than the regular cigarettes. And they, in the report, they included how black males 
uh, how they have the highest rates of lung cancer, higher rates than anyone else, and black people, way disproportionately black people, in particular black males, smoke uh, menthol, Newport menthol cigarettes, uh, and the evidence shows that they deliberately marketed this brand to black people almost exclusively and to no one else. Uh, but that was in the New York Times, and it was a black female author. She had a lot of research that was cited in this report. She should be with us this coming Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. I really wish I had seen some of this. We talked about some of this information with Vernelia Randall on her first visit back in 2009. She has a big section in her book talking about this uh, and exactly some of the things I just laid out, how menthol cigarettes, they are much more difficult to quit. I'm sure we have some menthol smokers in our listening off, uh, audience. They're more difficult to quit. They do more damage, and they have been deliberately pushed, marketed to black people. Uh, and even they have been very uh, deceptive uh, and racist in making sure that the damage that they have done does not get publicized and undone. Uh, and, and we'll talk about it on Wednesday, but I'm really looking forward to it. But the guest that's coming Wednesday, she has a paper titled Melanin and Nicotine. And I was so upset that I hadn't seen this earlier because I would have loved to hear Dr. Welsing's thought on this. But she has a lot of years, decades of research on the subject matter, racism, cigarette smoking, uh, nicotine, melanin, really interesting research. I'm looking forward to hearing her uh, commentary this coming Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if you have questions guest suggestions, problems, finding archive content, drop us an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Again, we're on Twitter at until justice. Uh, thanks for all folks tuning in. Hope it has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. We'll be back a little more than 12 hours. Uh, I will state again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, I have seen a lot of different situations on the plantation, global plantation. I cannot think of very many that are improved, that help us solve problems or put us in a better position if we are under the influence of alcohol, cannabis, methamphetamines, heroin, anything else that they concoct and say, yes, this should be uh, legalized. This will make things better. I cannot think of any of them. Uh, sobriety, that would solve, I think, a lot of our problems or at least keep us from exacerbating the terrible situation that we are in certainly if you're going to be behind the wheel you do not want to be inebriated and have that be the day that you bump into Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any other race soldier badge or no whites are dangerous males, females, children, elderly whatever the case may be they are dangerous, you want to be lucid clear thinking so you can make phenomenal decisions because your very life could be on the line anytime that you come in contact with them. Uh, that will wrap us up for the day. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.